Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. In the salon Lighthouse Goes Psycho, A Night at the Movies, acclaimed filmmaker Alexander Philippe offers us a deconstruction on what has been called the mother of all modern horror suspense films. I'm excited about this. I, I, my daughters are here, and I told them that the opening scene is a little bit risque, and they were sort of like, yeah, sure, I can handle it. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, just, well, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> How risque can you make it, Alexander? We'll, we'll find out. Uh, if you've never been to a deconstruction uh, by Alexander Philippe, um, trademark, <laughs> you should trademark it, um, you're in for a real treat. Um, we've known Alexander for, God, what, 15 years now. Um, he was like 12 years old. He came to our loft when we were starting Lighthouse. Um, he was wearing a really cool suit coat, suit jacket, and um, awesome shoes, sneakers. He always wears sneakers. And uh, he had a folder of his um, with his resume in it, and we had to hire the guy because he's just amazing. Um, and we do remember this. This is a little bit of trivia. Um, I remember him telling, telling us that the way he eats oranges, and we thought it was like a French-Swiss thing because he's French-Swiss. Um, he just eats oranges like he'd eat an apple. He just bites into it. And he, um, he denies that. So I don't know. You still do? Okay, yeah. Uh-huh. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see about that. Um, so please give it up for an amazing talent, incredibly smart guy, and awesome deconstructionist, Alexander Philippe. Thank you. Okay. So, uh, wow, this is a great crowd. Mr. Hitchcock would be, would be really, really happy, I think, with this. Um, and so, well, first thing I, I want to say, I actually do want to dedicate this session to Christy. Um, I, I did not know about her passing, so um, let's, you know, think about her while we, while we do this. Um, okay, so uh, I am, I am uh, as some of you may know... <laughs> that I'm a little bit obsessed with Mr. Hitchcock. Just a tiny little bit. Uh, to give you some kind of background on my obsession with him, it actually started when I was about 10 years old. And I was doing some um, you know, salons back in the day because, of course, my friends were not into Hitchcock. When you're 10, you're not into Hitchcock. So I had to do that with my parents and their friends. And so I would host like a whole like Hitchcock series every week. And, and we'd watch Hitchcock on VHS. And then I'd have a little introduction and then a you know, tiny little sort of deconstruction and discussion afterwards. So so, you know, fast forward to, to now, and clearly I'm still doing the same thing uh, with my parents. Well, yeah, my mom's actually in the audience, which, uh, yeah, she's, she's here from France. And uh, I just thought it was a really interesting little sort of meta thing to watch Psycho with my mom in the house. Even though, you know, I'm not wearing a dress. I hope that's okay with you guys. You know, I didn't, didn't give the full effect. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, so... So let me tell you a little bit more about my, my sort of obsession of late because uh, I've, I've really sort of – I'm pushing it right now to the extreme. I'm actually in the middle right now of production on uh, a, a truly epic documentary about the shower scene. Uh, and I'm talking not a short documentary. I'm talking a full-length, two-hour, black-and-white documentary about the shower scene and so that thing you know and so i've been i'm very very fortunate to be able to uh discuss the scene deconstruct the scene with some of the greatest minds in cinema today uh some of the greatest filmmakers greatest editors greatest you know hitchcock scholars and so on and so forth and um 
uh, and my mind is is just. I mean, I think about this thing like all the time. I I mean, truly, uh, it 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 is an obsession. And and here's the thing that I want to say. Uh, and uh, you know, we may not get past the shower scene today. Just just so you know, and I think that's okay. I mean, I think we're we're it's all right. Um, it, it is uh, it is without a doubt for for my money the greatest, the single greatest. Uh, you know two and a half minutes in the history of cinema. Um, it is one of those things that is, you know, if, if it were an object, I feel like it's an object that I can hold in my hands. And the more I look at it, the more I see things. And and the more I see things, the more I realize how much there is to it. And I am absolutely convinced that it contains all of Hitchcock. That scene contains all of Hitchcock. It contains his cinepathology. It contains his genius. It contain, contains his craft. It contains, uh, you know, uh, uh, all of his theories. It contains his fears. It contains his obsessions. It's it's full of everything that Hitchcock is. And um, you know, the thing too that that is really important to say is Hitchcock was sixty one years old when he made Psycho. Uh, that was right on the heels of North by Northwest. Okay, um, and Vertigo, which, by the way, was panned by the critic, panned by the critics at the time, which is insane. Uh, probably the greatest movie of all time, right? Um, this is a filmmaker at the height of his success who had absolutely nothing to prove. And what does he do? He says, "I'm going to take this novel, this short novel by Robert Bloch, which really is pulp. I mean, it's lurid. It's you know beneath him, and nobody wanted to make that film." And Hitchcock saw an opportunity, and in fact, he made that movie because of the shower scene. He saw an opportunity to do something extraordinary. He saw the opportunity, and we all know he was a trickster, but he saw the opportunity to, to give his audience the greatest trick he'd ever uh, you know, crafted. And um, so the whole story behind it, you know, he, was, he, uh, you know, he had a contract with Paramount, and... Um, you know, Paramount basically didn't want him to make that film. So he said, fine, I'll just do it with my TV crew. Because, of course, he had the Alfred Hitchcock Presents, you know, crew at the time. Um, they were like, no, no, we're not going to do this. Our, our studios are all booked, which was, by the way, a lie. It was not. Uh, he was like, okay, fine. I will fund it myself, and I will shoot it at Universal, and then you guys will actually distribute the film. Well, that's kind of hard to say no to. So they did. They did say yes to, to that, that scenario ultimately. So you do see the Paramount logo on it. Uh, now Universal actually owns the rights to, you know, to the film. Uh, the extraordinary thing about the shower scene is that uh, if you look at the evolution of the script, I've, I've been very fortunate to hold the original type, you know, typewritten screenplays from Joseph Stefano in my bare hands. And I'll tell you, the goosebumps, I will never have goosebumps like this in my life. Uh, freaking insane. Um, and if you start looking at, in fact, actually, even, even Hitchcock's handwritten notes prior to the script, I've held, the, I've held these. Uh, I've held these. And so um, uh, what, what you see in the early drafts is it just as the murder. Uh, that's it. That's all it says. And in fact, in uh, you know the Robert Block novel, the, the murder itself is very short. It's just two lines. You know, the Norman shows up and you know cuts off her scream and her head. That's it. 
end of story. And then when you start going through the numerous drafts, draft after draft, you see that it turns into a paragraph, and a paragraph turns into two paragraphs, and then it becomes a page, and it becomes two pages. And you can see that Hitchcock started essentially developing this thing, of course, along with Joe Stefano, uh, the screenwriter, into this epic murder scene, um, which ended up needing seven days to shoot. Now, you know, nowadays, independent filmmakers can almost make a feature in seven days, right? Hitchcock said, no, we're going to do this thing, and we're going to do it in seven days. Um, And when you think also, and I'll talk about this as we go through it, about what Hitchcock had to do to get past the censors. You know, I mean, I've seen the memos uh, from the censorship code telling essentially Hitchcock before he started shooting the scene, there is no way you're going to shoot this. This material is not appropriate. Not only did he do it, and he submitted it to them, but he did not change a frame. And the reason he did not change a frame of it is because he convinced them, which is true, that they, they, they saw something that they didn't see or didn't see something that they thought they saw. And so, therefore, the artistry of the scene, everything done through the, this extraordinary, extraordinary editing with you know, George Tomasini and, and, and Alfred Hitchcock, is um, I cannot even begin to tell you how re- revolutionary that is. I can't even begin to tell you how re- revolutionary the film is in terms of we watch movies today from beginning to end because of Psycho. Because Alfred Hitchcock did not want people to get in the theater once the movie started. Because, you know, back in the day, you know, back in 1959, you know, you'd go into these, like, double features. You'd walk into the middle of a film. You'd watch the end. You'd watch the other film. You'd watch the beginning of the other one. And then you left out. You know, you, you left the theater. So people walked in and out of the theater constantly. Uh, Hitchcock, his, his publicity stunt was, you know, we're not going to allow the theaters to let you in this theater if you don't show up for the beginning. Because, of course, you know, if you walk in on the shower scene, well, you know, you, you're missing the whole effect of the, of the film. So, so, so the reason why we watch movies today from beginning to end is because of Psycho, is because of Alfred Hitchcock. It was also the very first slasher film. It, it changed... You know, it changed narrative. It changed what was possible in narrative. We'll talk about the removal of the protagonist in the middle of the film and, and all these extraordinary things. I mean, I cannot, I cannot overstate the importance of that film. And I cannot overstate the importance of that film in Hitchcock's career. You know, after that, he did The Birds, of course. And after that, I think he slowly, you know, started going downhill. But for my money, that scene is the most extraordinary thing. And, and we'll get to it. So in terms of what, how we do this... Uh, this is going to be stop, start, deconstruction. Uh, I'm going to be, you know, showing you. We're going to start the film. I'll stop and talk about certain things. I want you guys to participate. Okay? If you see something, say stop. If you want to say something, say it, and then we'll talk. I mean, we, we want this to be interactive. I have a Coke. I have a tea. I have a coffee. I hope you have plenty of caffeine because we're going to be here for a long, long time. Okay? Uh, so just saying. And we'll take breaks. You know, we'll just take it gently. Uh, you know, but, um, um, anyway, so the first thing I do want to do though, because, um, I thought maybe it would be appropriate to do it tonight. I'm going to show you a little three minute, uh, industry sizzle for my documentary 7852. Uh, it's called 7852, by the way, because there were 78 setups for the shower scene. Uh, and ultimately there were 52 cuts in the shower scene. 
right? So it's a reference to the production of it and to the post-production of it. Uh, one thing I will say is you're going to see some familiar faces uh, in the sizzle. Uh, we're shooting everything over green screen because we're going to create an environment that is like essentially all our interviewees are going to be trapped inside the Bates Motel. Okay, so um, um, we have not we have not comped all the backgrounds yet. We haven't shot the plates for those. You'll only see a couple of instances where there's a, a background that replaces, uh, and those are temporary backgrounds. Uh, everything else will be sort of gray background, but just imagine that they're trapped, and then we're watching them because, of course, voyeurism is a big is a big component of the film. So, uh, so I'll, watch, I'll show you this, and then we will get into Psycho. Uh, let's turn off the lights. The shower scene elevated film. Not the horror genre specifically, but filmmaking in general. It's the most shocking example of brilliant montage in the history of movies. I mean, it's extraordinary piece of work. Horrible, but extraordinary. You can watch it over and over again, and it keeps showing you new things. It was actually the first time in the history of movies where it wasn't safe to be in the movie theater. And when I walked out into Times Square, I felt I'd been raped. When my grandfather saw the first rough cut, he didn't like it. He was actually going to cut it down to an hour and put it, make it part of his TV show. That's when Bernard Herrmann came in with the music. It's so ingrained in pop culture to where... Yeah, yeah. My seven-year-old like, yeah. daughter knows that, but she doesn't know what it comes from. That's incredible. She has no idea it's from Psycho. It, it's evolutionary. Like, we're just born knowing the shower seat. <laughs> Before Psycho, movies as a form of entertainment were relatively disposable. Hitchcock brilliantly said, we don't want anyone coming in after the beginning of this film. I've suggested that Psycho be seen from the beginning. In fact, this is more than a suggestion. It is required. Psycho ultimately is so much more punk rock than most people know. (laughs) It's actually really subversive. Those of us who work in the horror genre rarely wear tuxedos. This is not a movie that wears a tuxedo either. This is a movie that's very much jeans and a t-shirt, but it's told by a guy who wears a tuxedo. Hitchcock got away with uh, showing my belly button on film. All the beach towel movies, you know, with Annette Fudicello. They had uh, bikinis, but they had to have them up over their belly button. He just kept telling the censorship board, you're prudes, and you're actually horndog prudes, because you're seeing something that isn't there. You're experiencing his idea of what a murder is, and he's creating it with all these bits and pieces. Imagine if he had covered the murder with a single shot. It would be horrible in a different way, kind of like what happens with the beheadings that are now on YouTube. People say, oh, you know, saw bad storyboard of the whole thing, Hitchcock shot it with his rigid plan. But originally in the storyboards, she dies and the camera pulls back from her eye through the open door and the shot ends. The drain dissolving into the eyeball is the moment that everything kind of changes. 
where the movie announces that it is cinema. Oh, come on. It's a rupture in the movie, but the movie never achieves this kind of poetry again. And you begin to realize that, oh, this was what really mattered most to Hitchcock. It has to be an obsession. You're shooting that over the course of seven days. That is absolutely an obsession. Can we watch it again? (laughs) All right. So, let's do this. And again, like I said, um, I, I do want you guys to participate, right? You're, you're, you're cool with that? What's that? You can scream, absolutely. Absolutely, it is supposed to be a scream fest. Okay. Um, I think I need to wake up that drive here. And I'm going to put the subtitles on um, just so you can read. Sorry. I'm tired of sweating for people who aren't there. Just so you can read the, the dialogue. And, um, and uh, which is, by the way, something that I really recommend that you do when you watch movies in the first place. Um, I do it all the time. Watching movies with a dialogue on, you know, uh, it's just a great way to read what you're, you know, to just visualize the dialogue. Uh, good little trick. Okay, let's start. So now, of course, we're seeing the Universal logo, even though, like I said, there was this whole Paramount thing. We'll get to that in a second. Okay, so this is actually significant. (laughs) Um... It is. It is. Trust me. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> so yes, it's gonna be. A... <laughs> I did not. I did not mislead you, did I? So, um, well, what's really interesting here is is two things. Well, obviously the Paramount thing is one thing, but you're you're seeing the design of it. We're seeing these like sort of TV lines across it, and um, so I'm actually talking right now a lot to. Um, uh, Bill Crone, who is one of the great Hitchcock experts, he wrote this book uh, called Hitchcock at Work, which is actually really fascinating. And he's the only, um, the only guy who went through all of Hitchcock's correspondence, sort of files, m- you know, production memos, everything. And uh, um, he actually told me that he's he's getting the files, uh, Hitchcock's personal files, files that have been uh, uh, stuck, to, you know, at, at Universal for decades. Uh, and he's trying to get them for me. Uh, and he says that they, it can, they contain many, many secrets. So I'm, I'm, I can't tell you how excited I am. But uh, the one thing he said is that um, uh, so those, those straight lines that you see here, well, one, it's obviously a, uh, you know, sort of a little reference to the fact that Hitchcock was using his TV crew. Right, uh, which you know again is it's crazy. I mean, this movie was made on on a budget of eight hundred thousand um, dollars. Yeah, I mean, right on the heels of like you know Technicolor, North by Northwest, you know, big, huge spectacle. 
Um, but what's really interesting as well is that, and you're going to see in just a second, the opening credits were, of course, designed by Sol Bass, who also storyboarded the shower scene and the murder of Arbogast later on. Spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> and uh, there's these sort of this, the, this motif of, of you know, vertical and horizontal lines, which is actually set up here. And what Belcron doesn't know yet is whether this opening on the Paramount logo was actually designed by Sol Bass or was that something that Hitchcock thought of? So we're hopefully going to get to the bottom of that and you'll be able to see it maybe in 1752. So. Alexander? Yes. Absolutely. If you look at the Paramount logo from any other movie, you won't see that. Um, you know, it's it's so just a. It's absolutely an intentional design, and it's absolutely Hitchcock. Well, whether it's Hitchcock or whether it's Hitchcock and Sol Bass, uh, it is certainly Hitchcock. Obviously, uh, you know, immediately starting that sort of motif. Uh, you know the the schizo <laughs> motif, uh, the visual motif that we're going to see in the opening credits. Uh, but again, I, I think there's something really sort of beautiful and poetic about it in the sense that that he made that film with a TV crew. I mean, he went. You know, if think about think about you know. I don't know, uh, Spielberg, you know, now, uh, saying, you know, telling the studios, I'm going to make this film that you guys don't believe in, and I'm going to, I'm going to just go indie, you know. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's, it's crazy stuff, you know, if you think about it. You know, the, the crew, the, you know, he, he came so close to eventually releasing this film as just another episode. Of uh, of Alfred Hitchcock presents, uh, there was there was a point in the cut where he just wasn't um, he just really was not pleased with it, and it was actually Bernard Herrmann who saved the day and said, you know what, I have some ideas about what to do with the score, um, and of course we all know that well we all know the score of Psycho uh, of the the shower scene, um, but you know what's what's also remarkable about this is that it was the first Hollywood film that had a, a strings only score. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of firsts in this film, and we're going to see many, many of those. So anyway, so something really, you know, both poetic in terms of what he was trying to do here, uh, and uh, and also significant in terms of starting a visual motif. And it's you know right here in the first frame on a on a freaking logo. You know what I mean? That's Hitchcock for you. Now we're, now we're starting to see that, right? Was I? Well, yeah, and you know what? That's a really interesting point. So, so I, I actually, uh, and uh, Karen just said it's like Jaws. So the obviously the, the Jaws score by by John Williams, we, we all know it. I, I just came back from LA and uh, for a, a whole other round of interviews and um, interviewed Eli Roth. I don't know if you guys know him, uh, very famous. Uh, I mean, he did you know Hostel. Uh, Cabin Fever, he was in Inglorious Bastards. Um, and he actually made a very interesting comment about this. It's like, if you go, if you th- listen to the sound of Bernard Herrmann's strings in the shower scene, you know, ee, 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 and then you, you bring it down, it's like, dun, 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 right? So there's definitely, I mean, again, you know, you're talking about a score that was, that was certainly inspired so many things, so many scenes, so many, uh, I can't tell you how many filmmakers I've interviewed who said, you know, we, we, we used every, uh, you know, every single shot from, from that, that scene in, in, in our films. Um, it is probably no more influential, influential film than this one.
Okay. Let's try and get past the credits if we can. <laughs> but you know what's so great here? I mean, look, you know, look at this, right? I mean, this again. <laughs> oh, sorry, guys. Um, you know. This, this whole idea that and, – and Soul Bass was so great. There was actually a huge controversy uh, around Soul Bass who, who at one point went on record saying he had directed the shower scene, uh, which of course is not true and has been debunked you know, since then. But uh, left a lot of um, – there was a lot of bitter, bitterness in the end, which which is really too bad. But 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 you know, clearly a great visual uh, consultant, which is what he was on this film. Um, you know, but 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 again, you know, just looking at these lines and sort of this kind of starting to to play with this idea of a split personality of a broken uh, you know being, uh, and there he's doing that right now in the opening credits. Yeah, somebody, uh, somebody clap for Anthony Perkins. Yes, um, you know, here's the thing, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> well, here, I mean, here's the thing, right? The, 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 I have to vent for a second about the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science. Can I do that? Um, I mean, this is a film that you know. Well, one Hitchcock never won an Oscar. Never won an Oscar. Okay. Uh, Janet Lee was nominated. She didn't get the Oscar. Anth- uh, Anthony Perkins was not even nominated. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Bernard Herrmann did not get an Oscar. I mean, uh, yeah, on this film. Uh, I mean, you can go on and on. It's it's um, it's so frustrating. But uh, probably, you know, Anthony Perkins. Uh, I mean, not probably. Hands down, one of the greatest performances ever uh, on screen. Yes. No, I mean, no, he was not a big star. Janet Lee was definitely a bigger star than uh, than he was, and so it was it was a bit of a risk for him. Um, it's one of those things that you know he ended up making Psycho two and Psycho three and Psycho four, and I think he never got out you know from that shadow um, on some level, and you know whatever that's fine. Uh, Vera Miles, of course, uh, is credited here. You'll notice that she is credited here. Uh, getting a major credit and not Janet Lee. We know why that is. Some of us, some of us who've seen the film, right? Know what happens to Janet Lee? Yes? Okay. <laughs> Just making sure. Uh, by the way, if you watch the trailer, if you watch the six minute trailer to this film, that it's really a lot of fun. Hitchcock sort of takes you through, you know, he's on the property, the, you know, the Bates Motel and the Bates House, and he walks around and he shows you the rooms and he goes to the shower and. And uh, and at the very end, you know, he pulls the curtain and you see this woman screaming. And you think, of course, because if you've seen the, th- the film, you think it's Janet Lee. But no, it is Vera Miles wearing a wig. So. So.
So, you know, if you, if you look at those credits this way, right, the clue here and Janet Lee as Marion Crane, uh, of course, audiences back in the day, you know, probably didn't really sort of, you know, pay attention to this. Uh, but, you know, she is getting a minor credit, even though she's really going to be the star of the first 45 minutes. So there's a lot to say here. I don't even know where to begin, frankly. Um, all right, let me start with this. Um, so, so you're talking about again, right? You got to think about Hitchcock going indie, super, super low budget, uh, and he had this idea of this kind of really, you know, swooping, you know, really elegant helicopter shot over the city of Phoenix. You know, panning across and then essentially entering uh, a window. Well, you know that didn't work out too well. The, the shots that they got, uh, they actually sent a unit uh, to Phoenix to do those shots. They were very sort of shaky, very bumpy, and so you're going to see a number of dissolves actually throughout this. And and you know what's so great too is that there's something a little bit clunky about Psycho. I mean, even in the shower scene. But you have to think about the cameras that they were using at the time versus the cameras we use today. And if you compare this version of Psycho with the Gus Van Sant 1998 version of Psycho, uh, which of course is slicker, but it's too slick. You know, that movie it just doesn't work. In fact, I, I actually interviewed... Uh, the editor of the 1998 Psycho, who said that they shot the shower scene, you know, shot for shot, and they wanted to assemble it in exactly the same way. Uh, but when they did, it just didn't work. So what does that tell you about sort of the magic that happened there? Um, you know, there, there are things that can be explained, but again, there are things that I'm, I know I will never be able to explain about that scene um, and about this movie. So, but, um, okay, so let's, let's um, play this for a second. I'm sorry, did I hear somebody? No. no. I'm hearing voices. This is not good. It's all down here from here. Um, well, okay, so... <laughs> I will say this. Um, so, so I want to talk, talk about what this scene, what this shot actually does. But you, when you think about Hitchcock, you've got to think about his body of work, and you have to think about the way that his movies talk to each other. Uh, because that's very important. Those of you who have seen North by Northwest, what is the last shot of North by Northwest? Right. Train. What happens to the train? The train goes into the tunnel, which, of course, is, a, is an image for sexual intercourse. Sexual intercourse. Well, we are going 
here in this shot, we're going to go through a dark window and emerge on a room in a post-coital scene. How interesting. You know, and uh, but again, you know, this is not, there's nothing in, you know, that is not intentional in a Hitchcock film. All of these things are part of what he does. And, and to understand Psycho, you have to understand how he functions as a filmmaker. You have to understand how he thinks. And you have to understand his visual language. Um, speaking of visual language, we've got to talk about Birds. His next movie was The Birds, right? 1963. Well, interesting that we are here in the city of Phoenix. Interesting that the name of our lead character at this point is Marion Crane. Interesting... <laughs> that we're going to see a number of birds along the way and bird references. Interesting that Norman in the parlor is going to tell her, you eat like a bird. What's really interesting is that the novella, uh, The Birds, was not written at the time. So, you know, this is Hitchcock's sort of, you know, this is truly for me the sign of, you know, genius of that sort of magnitude. Uh, you know, you start developing this sort of visual language and you don't think about it, it just happens. And then it, it takes a different form, you know, just the way he wanted more mirrors in, um, you know, in Psycho. There's a lot of mirror shots. We're going to talk about those. Uh, but, but uh, you know, and so all of those visual motifs are there, and then they sort of play out in a bigger way in, in later films. It's, it's mind-blowing stuff. Hey, yep. I think it's also interesting that there's a replica of the Eiffel Tower, and you're French, and it's like he knew that you were French. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I guess. I guess he's he's got it. Yeah, he's psychic. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's try and get through that window if we can. Um, so. All right. So here we go. Phoenix, everything. So you're seeing the dissolve here, right? We're starting to see those dissolves, which is not his intention. I mean, his intention was one long, fluid shot, right? And so that's also, well, okay, we all know that Psycho is a work of misdirection, right? And the first 45 minutes of Psycho is just one big misdirection. We could certainly argue that it's a MacGuffin on some way, but let's not even go there for now. Um, but so this idea that, you know, he is telling us Friday, December the 11th, and then if you keep playing on another dissolve, by the way, right here... p.m. What is up with that? You know, the, the, I mean, it's so interesting because he gets you involved from the beginning into this idea that the information he's giving you actually matters. (laughs) And it does not at all, not whatsoever. So he gets us involved in this story, and that's the whole point, the whole trick of Psycho is to get us to the Bates Motel. Right? Yes. 1959, Was it? Oh, we've got to talk after this. Uh, that's cool. That's cool. Um, so maybe it is significant. It is and it's not. You know, th- this whole sort of idea that... 
he needs to get us to the Bates Motel. Hitchcock understood in 1960 that people were not ready for this. Um, I mean, he, you know, uh, he knew very well uh, the kind of reaction people were going to have. And so the only way, you know, I, naturally as, as viewers or as readers, if we read a book, we tend to attach ourselves to a character or a few characters, right? I mean, the, those characters are the way into the story, Right? This is what happens. Well, Janet Lee in this instance is going to bear way into the story. Um, and so he knew very well. I mean, the whole experiment here was we're going to get you attached. We're going to get you involved in this, in this person's life, in her personal struggle for 45 minutes as a way to take, take us to the Bates Motel. Uh, and then, of course, we're going to, going to remove her entirely from the equation. Um, so, so he is really focusing on giving importance, giving significance to those uh, trivial little moments right here. And here we are, approaching the window. And uh, it is sort of the, if you think about it too, it is, the, it is like a little fly, Right? It is like a bird. Uh, although a bird, you know, a bird would flap, you would probably hear the bird. But the reason I'm, I'm saying fly is that if you remember the very last shot of Psycho, right, of Norman Bates watching us, looking at us in the voice of his mother saying, you know, why I wouldn't even hurt a fly. So there is, again, this sort of beautiful symmetry between the first shot and the last shot of that movie. Was that rear window? Yeah. So, so voyeurism, and we're going to talk about voyeurism a lot. And by the way, this is the reason why, if you've noticed in my in my little sizzle here, that um, actually interviewing people, it's it's the kind of Errol Morris uh, technique using the interotron, where they're actually looking at my reflection on the camera. They're watching straight. They're looking straight into the camera uh, because I want to play with this theme of, of voyeurism, of course. Um, you know, and uh, but Hitchcock here does that. I mean, it's like look at who. You know, keep an eye on, no pun intended, keep an eye on who's watching you uh, and who's watching the characters as we watch. I mean, you can sort of deconstruct Psycho almost as a, as a study in voyeurism and, and study in, um, you know, the ritual of, of movie going, of movie watching and what it means to actually watch something and be involved because we're going to be made witness to something we don't want to witness, uh, we know from the very beginning we're gonna we're gonna you know we're gonna be uh, an accomplice to Janet Lee stealing the money, right? So our allegiance to her because she's our main character we're gonna going to attach ourselves to her, but uh, but also we don't want to be really a part of that, right? This sort of push and pull is an extraordinary thing that Hitchcock does and he does that all the time with his characters. And here we are. So, <laughs> yeah, so imagine, right, 1960. And, and here's the thing. I was talking about this being a movie of firsts. This was the first time that American audiences were witnessing one of their major stars in a post-coital scene lying horizontally on a bed in her underwear, right? So this is a signifier that they're already – it's already saying – what you're about to see <laughs> is completely new, is completely novel. You've never seen this before. 
Never did eat your lunch, did you? I better get back to the office. These extended lunch hours give my boss excess acid. Why don't you call your boss and tell him you're taking the rest of the afternoon off? Friday anyway, and hot. What do I do with my free afternoon? Walk you to the airport? Well, you could laze around here a while longer. Hmm. Checking out time is 3 p.m. Hotels of this sort aren't interested in you when you come in, but when your time is up... So, you know, obviously this is really sort of, again, you know, you have to sort of try and put yourself in the shoes of an audience in 1960, you know, really racy stuff. This sense that you're witnessing, you're being a voyeur from the beginning, you're, you're witnessing something that you probably shouldn't be witnessing. Um, and again, you know, the very subtle, uh, uh, you know, foreshadowing in the dialogue, when your time is up, right? Uh, what's that? Just like analysis. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, and we're going to see we're going to see a few of those lines actually in the in this opening scene. Uh, but I want you to think about this relationship here, and and um, you know because I've I've talked so much about the importance of uh, the Marion Crane character and the fact that we, by default, really attach ourselves to her right now. Um, I think in terms of how you feel towards her, you know. Um, you know, do we want? You know, do we understand? Do we get her struggle? Do we appreciate her struggle? Do we want her to succeed in what she does? Uh, think about how you feel about her as a movie goer. Oh, Sam, I hate having to be with you in a place like this. Well, I've heard of married couples who deliberately spend an occasional night in a cheap hotel. When you're married, you can do a lot of things deliberately. You sure talk like a girl who's been married. Sam, this is the last time. So, you know, once again, Sam, this is the last time, right? For what? For this. Meeting you in secret so we can be secretive. You come down here on business trips and we steal lunch hours. I wish you wouldn't even come. All right. What do we do instead? Write each other lurid love letters? I have to go, Sam. I can come down next week. Uh, you should also. Uh, it's also worth mentioning here that that her underwear is white. Uh, there will be a point where it will turn black, uh, and that's when she makes her decision. No. Not even just to see you, have lunch in public. Oh, we can see each other. We can even have dinner, but respectably, in my house with my mother's picture on the mantel. And I mean, how great is that? How great is that reference, right? So in the dialogue, we're already setting up this idea of the mother watching. And, and, and by the way, while well, those of you who've seen Psycho, I'm, again, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not spoiling this thing. And if I am, oh well. <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, but when, <laughs> when we see mother in, uh, you know, at, towards the end of this film, uh, it, is, uh, it is not just mother, it is really death staring at us. And when you start thinking in terms of, of the death stares that we get in Psycho and how many of those there are, you start really getting into Hitchcock's dark, dark um, philosophy. You know, uh, I mean, he was really preoccupied with this idea that horrible things happen to good people all the time and that you can you know we can wake up one morning and cross the street and get you know 
uh, run over by a car, and this is what happens. And so, uh, so those ideas, really those themes that were starting to really preoccupy him in his 60s, uh, and then of course later on, uh, are really, really potent here. You know, I've talked about the birds, but you know, the, the movie The Birds as well, uh, you know, uh, the birds attack also about 40 minutes into the film. Uh, and and we don't know why they attack. They just attack. And that is the one thing that is so disturbing about the film. And this is really Hitchcock's view of life. It's like, you know, terrible things happen. And they're going to happen no matter what you do, no matter what kind of person you are. It's just the way it is. So so it is the way, it's, it is the way he thinks. At least was thinking at, at that time. My sister helping me broil a big steak for three. And after the steak... Did we send sister to the movies, turn mama's picture to the wall? You know, again, that's, you know, I just love this idea that, that through the dialogue, he's talking about this idea of turning the picture to the wall, turning away the gaze of the mother. Um, yeah, it's, it's just beautiful work. Sam. All right. Ryan, whenever it's possible. I want to see you, and under any circumstances, even respectability. Um, <clears throat> okay, so let me get some water here. This is going to be a long evening. <laughs> you guys doing okay, by the way? All good? Um, you know, in Psycho, it's also really... It's Hitchcock killing the idea of the Hollywood movie. The idea of the beautiful sort of technicolor, you know, fake universe where these movie stars live and everything turns out okay in the end and there's no real sort of lurid content and now it's this sort of gritty black and white shot by a TV crew. And um, and these this is a couple, this is like real life. You know, they're talking about the kind of stuff that, of course, people were talking about back in 1959, but they were not talking about it on the screen. And I think that's one of the reasons why Psycho was so impactful when it came out, and is that you know people realized you know they saw a little bit of themselves, um, you know, in, into this. But so so Hitchcock was really ahead of his time. I think he saw an opportunity in making this film uh, that it was going to you know to resonate with audiences. But I love the fact that the content of this film is so completely completely different from anything we'd seen before. Even though Vertigo was pretty dark. Um, and certainly does have a down ending. Uh, it is still very much a Hollywood film. It's a big, sort of big production film. This is completely different stuff. You make respectability sound disrespectful. Oh, no, I'm all for it. It requires patience, temperance, a lot of sweating out. Otherwise, though, it's just hard work. But if I could see you and touch you even as simply as this, I won't mind. Tired of sweating for people who aren't there. I sweat to pay off my father's debts and he's in his grave. I sweat to pay my ex-wife alimony and she's living on the other side of the world somewhere. I pay too. And here's another nice little bit of foreshadowing. I pay too. And she sure is going to pay. Um, well, what are we getting so far from this dialogue, right? I mean, it's a very... It's so cool because it's such a mundane scene. I think if you're familiar again with Hitchcock's work prior to, to this point, you're wondering like what what are we 
really watching here. This is not the kind of stuff we're used to seeing. There's no real sort of suspense to speak of. Um, so thinking about, about this as an audience member, how are we getting involved into this emotionally? Thoughts? Anybody? Bouncing back and forth, yeah. Well, what is their struggle? It's a very simple struggle, right? Yeah, they want to be together, and there's there's obviously a certain amount of obstacles that are in the way, right? And secrets. Uh, you know, they can't really sort of meet in, in broad daylight. Uh, you know, they have to sort of meet in this, again, you know, little, you know, motel or hotel, um, you know, in the middle of the afternoon. They want to be together, but they really have not been able to sort of take that step. I mean, it's a very, um, it, you know, it, it's it's a it's a relatable dilemma. You know, this idea that you want to be with someone, but there are obstacles, right? I think we've all been through that on some levels. Whether you know, there's that kind of obstacles or different kinds of obstacles doesn't matter. Uh, the fact is that they are struggling with this, and so in a way, we are of course relating to, you know, we're. You know, uh, we're feeling for for uh, the Janet Lee character. They also pay who meet in hotel rooms. A couple of years in mine. Debts will be paid off. If she remarries, the alimony stops. I haven't even been married once yet. Yeah, but when you do, you'll swing. Oh, Sam, let's get married. Yeah. And live with me in a storeroom behind a hardware store in Fairvale. We'll have lots of laughs. Tell you what, when I send my ex-wife for alimony, you can lick the stamps. I'll lick the stamps. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Arian, you want to cut this off? Go out and find yourself somebody available? I'm thinking of it. And I think that's actually a really important moment right here, you know, because it, I think it humanizes him, even though Hitchcock never f- found him to be a very interesting character. He didn't really care about him. In fact, you know, Hitchcock didn't really care about what happened after the shower scene uh, to a certain extent. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating things a little bit, but there's, I think there's a lot of truth to that because he was after that sort of master trick. Um, but, uh, you know, Norman Bates is a far, far more interesting character than Sam. Uh, and so, but but I think this moment really humanizes him as well because you know he's being real enough with her to say, look, you know, we both know that there's something very difficult and and practically impossible in this relationship that we're having. So you know, I care about you enough to to say I'm gonna you know if you want to go you know it's okay. Um, so I think that's a very important moment because it's sort of. Uh, crystallizes the importance of um, you know of this relationship to both of them and how they feel for each other. I mean, it is it is a true love. How could? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 
No, that's possible too. I mean, it's there's what I love about this is that there's a lot of ambiguity to this, right? I mean, we, we as we'll see, of course, later on into the film, assuming that we stay past the shower scene, uh, you know, he does come back and he does really want to get to the bottom of what happened to her, you know, so he does care. Uh, the extent of it, well, we don't know. I mean, certainly if you look at that this particular scene and their body language and the way they act, uh, you know, she is the one who says, I want to get married. She's the one who, uh, who's really, really eager to make this work. He tends to pull back. But whether he tends to pull back because he doesn't feel the same way or, or because he is just feeling weighted by everything that is really happening in, in their life and, and, and just doesn't see a way out the way she does, um, that's, that's really up to interpretation, you know. And I think that's what also makes it a, a really nice scene. Do you even? Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't he feel not worthy? Um, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, I, that's. That, I think that's that's another very you know very valid reading of it. I mean, as I said, you know, the character of Sam is um, is not a very interesting character. The moment that we meet Norman Bates, you know, and we get into that scene in the parlor with with Janet Lee, I think instantly, and this is again very very intentional from, you know, Hitchcock, we instantly start wondering, ooh, isn't there going to be a romance going on here? You know, I think we we see the sort of slight possibility that there might be something developing between Marion Crane and Norman Bates. Um, well, it never quite gets to that, of course. Think a thing like that. Don't miss your plane. Hey, we can leave together, can't we? I'm late, and uh, you have to put your shoes on. Look at that. We made we made it past the first scene. <laughs> and of course, this is uh, Mr. Hitchcock right here. You see him in the window. With the with the hat, you gotta love him. Ah, oh, how cute! <laughs> is Mr. Lowry back from lunch? And this right here is actually Pat Hitchcock, uh, his daughter, who. Um, yeah, she was a heck of an actress, and she uh, she has a she has a really great role in Strangers on a Train, uh, which is an absolute must watch Hitchcock film if you have not seen it. He's lunching with a man who's buying the Harris Street property. You know the oil lease man. That's why he's late. You got a headache? Oh, it'll pass. Headaches are like resolutions. You forget them as soon as they stop hurting. Have you got some aspirin? Yeah. I've got something. Not aspirin. My mother's doctor gave them to me the day of my wedding. Teddy was furious when he found out I'd taken tranquilizers. Any calls? <laughs> Teddy called me. My mother called to see if Teddy called. Oh, your sister called to say she's going to Tucson to do some buying and she'll be gone the whole weekend. And... Wow. It's as hot as fresh milk. Hey, you girls ought to get your boss to air condition you up. He can afford it today. Oh, <laughs> uh, Marion, will you get the copies of that deed ready for Mr. Cassidy? Uh, tomorrow's the day, my sweet little girl. Oh, oh, not, not you. My daughter. A baby. And tomorrow she stands her sweet self up there and gets married away from me. 
I want you to take a look at my babies. <laughs> 18 years old. And she never had an unhappy day in any one of those years. Come on, Tom. My office is air-conditioned. You know what I do about unhappiness? I buy it off. Are, uh, are you unhappy? But you know what's what's... I mean... Obviously, the guy is pretty darn creepy. But uh, what's so interesting, if you think about this this constant motif of voyeurism, he is looking at her and looking through her, and he is seeing the unhappiness. So there's always this kind of game of, like, we're watching, but, you know, characters are watching other characters and seeing through them and seeing things in them, um, and then the eyes of death looking at them and looking at us and so on and so forth. So this is this is still going along with that motif. <laughs> that that would be a theory, yes. <laughs> By the way, how are we doing on the air condition? Are you guys getting enough air? Is that was that a hint? <laughs> no, we're we're doing good. We're getting enough air from uh, from here, yeah. Okay, all right. Not inordinately. I'm buying this house for my baby's wedding present. Forty thousand dollars cash. Now that's that's not buying happiness. That's just buying off unhappiness. <laughs> I never carry more than I can afford to lose. <laughs> Count them. I declare. I don't. That's how I get to keep it. Huh. Guy's real subtle, huh? <laughs> oh, man. You, you know, was that? <laughs> yes, yes. You know, again, it's like it, the, the the remarkable thing about Psycho when you watch it this way too, and when you think about the shower scene, which is this kind of black hole in the middle of the film, uh, is that is that none of what we're we're watching right now really truly matters. It, it's not going to matter. It is not the story of Psycho. So you know, and so we're getting involved. I mean, Hitchcock is getting us involved, scene after scene after scene after scene. And the money now is becoming this thing, which of course is going to have great importance, only to be discarded, only to be sort of end up at the bottom of a swamp, right? Well, of course he is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's Hitchcock. No, it's not. And that's the trick is that he, you know, he has to get us involved. I mean, in order for the shower scene to work, you have to be involved. Um, as you saw in the uh, sizzle, I was fortunate to interview Peter Bogdanovich. I'm a big, big fan of his work. Obviously, he got to interview Hitchcock numerous times when he was actually in his 20s and 30s. And uh, you know, he told me the story of he was there in 1960 for the very first public screening of Psycho. There were 500 people in, you know, from the media. There were about 1,000 people in the audience. Um, nobody knew what to expect, right? I mean, you heard a couple of very strong sound bites from him in, in the sizzle. But what he said that I thought was so fascinating, he said that, that when, when the shower murder happened, um, there was this sustained scream from the audience. It was just like, ah! 
to the point where you did not, you could not hear the Bernard Herrmann score. And it was the second time that he actually went to, to see that movie that he heard the strings. So that just gives you a, a sense of the impact of that film. Uh, you know, with audiences in 1960, has there been anything else since? I mean, the, you know, the one horror film that I, I can think of that had that impact on me certainly was uh, uh, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, which I, you know, I, I couldn't, I was too young obviously to see in the theater, but uh, but when I saw it uh, for the first time, it was it was even like on uh, DVD, I think, and I had to stop that movie in the middle of it. Uh, I just couldn't take it. It's just, it's just. I mean, have you, if you guys have seen it or not, I mean, if you've not seen it, um, you, you probably should. Um, it is. It is for my money. It's the most extraordinary horror film ever made. I mean, it's. It has no score. Uh, it's this grainy 16 millimeter. It's a, it's this beautiful, gorgeous, horrible, horrible film. Um, it's really, really great stuff. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Yeah, good question. The heartthrob. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Sure. Hey, yeah. I'm sorry? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, obviously, he he's the one who tempts, right? I mean... It's you know this is the uh, the sort of plot point that is really important in that movie, for you know her to start, you know actively thinking about because you know she doesn't strike you as the kind of character. I mean, it's Janet Leigh for crying out loud, right? Uh, she doesn't strike you, or certainly didn't strike audiences at the time as the kind of person who would be even thinking about doing something like this. But she is she is desperate. She's unhappy. She wants this to work. She sees this opening, and she's going to take it. So it is it is obviously temptation. Um, and again, but it is all crafted to take us <laughs> to the Bates Motel. So yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Oh, for sure. You know, and it's, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, our, our generation, well, like the new generations now are so used. To, I mean, I was in a school the other day, you know, and, and we were talking about zombies and I, you know, I had a scene playing on, you know, like uh day of the dead where the guy gets just completely like torn to pieces by 
zombies, you know, and uh, and those were like eight-year-old kids, and they're watching this, and they were like laughing. They were like, "Oh yeah," you know. I mean, it's it's the impact is completely <laughs> is completely different because it's it's all around us. We see it all the time now, you know. I mean, for you know, Christ's sake, let's not even talk about ISIS and the kind of stuff that we're you know that they're sending our way. Um, but um, but 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 it's particularly important, uh, I think. In light of this, to go back to the shower scene, and, and trust me, when we're going to get there, we're going to spend some time on it. I will tell you right now. Uh, we better hurry, yes. Uh, we're not going to hurry, though. But, uh, 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 you know, that, that, that scene is, you know, you, you, it's extraordinary in the way it works because of what you think you see and the artistry, the artistry of it, you know, but you really don't see anything. You know, it is all a trick, and it's so elegant and so beautiful. Um, anyway. Cash transaction of this size is most irregular. Now, so what? It's my private money. Now it's yours. Suppose we put it in the safe, and then Monday morning when you're feeling good... Oh, speaking of feeling good, where's that bottle you said was in your desk? Oh. <laughs> You know, uh, sometimes I can keep my mouth shut. <laughs> Lowry, I am dying of thirstaroni. Um, you know, Hitchcock also liked to play a lot on this idea of like who do we quote unquote owe allegiance to, you know, in terms of our, our characters. And uh, you know, characters constantly do things in Hitchcock movies that, you know, on the one on the one hand you, you sort of like them and you attach yourself to them. On the one hand, you disapprove of what they're doing, but because they're your main character, you have no choice but to go along with this. Um, obviously Marion is going to do something that, you know, we would probably disapprove of. But the fact that this guy is such a jerk, you know, we also sort of feel good about it. Right? It's like we'd rather have, you know, it, it's better for that money to be in her hands than in his. And clearly, he doesn't need that money, right? So it's so clever because Hitchcock gets us involved like this, right? We become, we become the one who steals the money. We're the one who ends up in the shower. And then we're the one who watches, well, if we're, if we're you know, if we've got a thing for Janet Lee, we're the voyeur. And then we're the one who gets stabbed. You know, so it's Hitchcock sort of making us feel those things and then punishing us for it, right? I don't even want it in the office over the weekend. Put it in the safe deposit box in the bank and we'll get him to give us a check on Monday instead. He was flirting with you. I guess he must have noticed my wedding ring. <laughs> Come in. The copies. Uh, Mr. Lowry, if you don't mind, I'd like to go right on home after the bank. I have a slight hand. You go right on home, because me and your boss are going out and get ourselves a little drinking done, right? Of course. Do you feel ill? Well, just a headache. Well, what you need is a weekend in Las Vegas, the playground of the world. I'm going to spend this weekend in bed. Thank you. Aren't you going to take the pills? They'll knock that headache out. K, 
can't buy off unhappiness with pills. I guess I'll go put this money in the bank and go home and sleep it off. Okay, so now <laughs> we're seeing the black underwear and she is thinking about it. But uh, if you look at this little picture there to her left, um, I think you could probably say this is a picture of her as a child, right? As a little baby. Uh, who would take a picture of her as a child? Possibly her mother, Right, so there's you know we're starting to sort of introduce this idea, and you're going to see there's another sort of significant picture on the wall in a moment. You know, and this is very much Hitchcock telling us, "Watch this money. This is what this movie is all about." Right, this is the trick. He's you know like a magician is like, "Look at my left hand," and he's working. His magic with his right. And the Bernard Herrmann score shows up. So beautiful. I mean, one of the great scores of movie history. Look at that hesitation. She's thinking about it. Should I do it? Should I not? And as she does that, we do it too, right? Think about the way that Hitchcock involves us in this. We have been made voyeurs from the beginning, the way that we were with Jimmy Stewart in rear window watching. We've been made to watch. We're watching now, but we're also witnesses and we're also uh, an accomplice. And look, isn't that a shower? <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> yeah, this is, there's nothing here, again, that is not intentional. This is beautiful, you know, foreshadowing, visual foreshadowing. And to the left of the showers, we're going to see in just a second. more than likely a picture of her parents again, right? Possibly watching her. Yes? Not only is it the shower, it's the same orientation as what we're going to see in the motel, at the banks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's positioned in exactly the same uh, relationship to the bedroom in, in the motel, absolutely. Right, and so, so we talked about mirrors, um, and we're going to see a lot of those. This is the one time, actually, that Marion looks at herself in the mirror as she is, uh, you know, sort of pondering what to do with this. Uh, after this shot, we're going to see a number of mirror shots, in fact, reflection shots, but she will never, you know, once she's made the actual decision to steal the money, she will never look at herself again. can see the picture here clearly i would say clearly the parents you know and and again and look at the way they're i mean they're watching her she is making this decision under the gaze of her parents you know the layers in that movie it's just it's insane
and and see how emotionally now we are involved in this right we wanted to make the right decision on the one hand and return the money on the other hand it's just a movie we want her to take it and see what happens right it's like hitchcock is so incredible at making you feel two completely opposite things at the same time and he does that over and over and over again You know, and, and once again, the sort of, um, you know, you, you can look at those um, glasses here as, as a mirror, uh, you know, looking straight at her, uh, and once again, the gaze through the mirror. Hold it there. In quite a hurry. Yes, I didn't intend to sleep so long. I almost had an accident last night from sleepiness, so I decided to pull over. You slept here all night? Yes. As I said, I couldn't keep my eyes open. There are plenty of motels in this area. You should have... <laughs> I mean, just to be safe. You know, wonderful little irony here from Hitchcock. <laughs> I didn't intend to sleep all night. I just pulled over. Have I broken any laws? No, ma'am. Then I'm free to go. You know, it's so funny to me that you think about, you know, the great critic Pauline Kael, who hated this film, by the way, and, and kept accusing Hitchcock of being more interested in the trick uh, than in anything else. And what is movie making but 
a trick. What is storytelling but a trick? Um, I think she completely missed the mark on this. And, you know, Hitchcock was such a great craftsman. Uh, and not just him, obviously, Joe Stefano and Bernard Herrmann and all the people who collaborated with him uh, in making those, those extraordinary films. Uh, but this is, you know, this is what great art is all about. Is anything wrong? Of course not. Am I acting as if there's something wrong? Frankly, yes. <laughs> Please, I'd like to go. Well, is there? Is there what? I've told you there's nothing wrong, except that I'm in a hurry and you're taking up my time. Now, just a moment. Turn your motor off, please. May I see your license? Why? Please. So, at this point, uh, the... The money actually becomes becomes a source of suspense in the film, right? I mean, Hitchcock. Those of some of you who are here in in this group who took my my uh, two part class on on Hitchcock and and suspense uh, a few days ago here. Um, the the sort of you know the big thing about Hitchcock is that uh, his theory of suspense is that in order for suspense to work, the audience has to know. Right. So, for instance, if there's a bomb under the, under a table, and we're sitting around a table, but we know that there's a bomb, uh, you know, then suddenly we can we can have a very, um, you know, we can have a scene of small talk, and it'll it'll still be compelling because we know that there's a bomb that could explode at a certain time. Uh, you know, here in this particular case, the money that she's hiding in the bag acts as uh, an element of suspense because if she gets you know she could get discovered at, at any time and of course the way she's behaving is not helping in any way um, and uh, you know by the way those of you who are interested in suspense um, uh, one of the great movies and we were just talking about this on the porch uh, uh, you have to watch Inglorious Bastards uh, it is it is uh, you know Tarantino's as far as I'm concerned is his greatest you know achievement uh, the entire movie is built around basically four suspense sequences where very very little happens uh, and it's all suspense and it's just so incredibly good I mean those are scenes we could be deconstructing like this for sure And that's also the way suspense works, right? It's tension and release. Tension and release. Of course, the music adds a great deal to the tension.
Um, I, I, I just a couple of days ago, just a little sort of tidbit of whatever nerdy stuff. Uh, I got an email from Chris Innes, who's you know the editor of the the Hurt Locker, who told me that this gat this um, uh, car dealership, which uh, for a long time was no longer a car de- dealership, is apparently again a car dealership now in LA. How cool is that? I think this is really cool stuff. And it's also very interesting that she's going to exchange a, a black car for a white car. Yes, it is. But, but the dealership is in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the actual dealership. Sorry. Yes, now she has black. Yes. Exactly. Be with you in a second. And we'll take a break before the shower scene if that's cool with you guys, yeah? You're going to need it. for trouble. What? There's an old saying, the first customer of the day is always the most trouble, but like I say, I'm in no mood for it, so I'm going to treat you so fair and square that you won't have one human reason to give me. Can I trade my car in and take another? Do anything you've a mind to. Being a woman, you will. That yours? <laughs> yes, it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. I just... Sick of the sight of it. Well, why don't you have a look around here and see if there's something to strike your eyes. Meanwhile, I'll have my mechanic give you the once over. You want some coffee? I'll yeah, strikes your eyes. Good catch. He said, "See if there's something that strikes your eyes." Very nice, Karen. I didn't. Uh, that's one I didn't catch before. Uh, yeah, I mean it's chock full. I mean it's again. It's this is the great thing about Hitchcock. You can watch those films over and over and over again, and you will never get to the bottom of it. Uh, it's like David Lynch. You know, it's one of those things. Obviously, in a very different way. In a very different way. Um, but you know, like talking about voyeurism, this is you know what's so cool too is that we're watching a character who is at this point doing everything she can to not be watched, and we're watching him, watch watching him watching her. Yes, and those layers are going to keep going. You know, or they're going to pile on and uh, at the you know the Bates Motel. No, oh, thank you. I'm in a hurry, and I just want to make a change. One thing people never ought to be when they're buying used cars, and that's in a hurry. But like I said, it's too nice a day to argue. I'll uh, shoot your car in the garage here. I'd have picked for you myself. Uh, how much? Go ahead, spin it around the block. It looks fine. How much would it be with my car? 
You mean you don't want the usual day and I have to think it over? <laughs> you are in a hurry, aren't you? Somebody chasing you? Of course not. Please. Well, it's the first time the customer ever high-pressured the salesman. <laughs> oh, figure roughly... Your car plus $700? $700. Ah, you always got time to argue money, huh? All right. I take it you can prove that car is yours. I mean, uh, out-of-state license and all, uh, you got your pink slip and your... I believe I have the necessary papers. Is there a ladies' room? In the building. Over there. Yeah, so thanks for mentioning this. This is actually a very important thing. Um, yes, we're seeing a bird's eye view here, but actually, if you really look at the shots, you know, I mean, there, there's only so far we can go tonight. I'm sorry, but if you really start looking at the, the camera position on Marion Crane, um, aside from those, you know, clearly high shots, the camera is usually just a little bit higher than than her eye line. Uh, by the way, uh, Hitchcock uh, used almost exclusively 50 millimeter lenses to mimic the human eye in in this in this particular film, right? The human gaze. But so the this, the those really unnerving sort of slightly high camera shots, uh, we're never on the same level. We're always watching. We're being made to watch her, and this is a clear example. But but keep paying attention to this as we go through it. And there's another mirror, and she will not she will not not look at herself in this mirror, especially not that at this point now that she's uh, you know working on her transaction. It's great stuff. almost, you know, Hitchcock saying, look at yourself, look at yourself, look at what you're doing, and she's not doing it. She won't have to live with her for very long, that's true. Yeah, she's going to him, yeah. Well, she's, yeah, she's very reactive. Very impulsive. Yeah, exactly, she has not figured out exactly how this is going to turn out you know it's a desperate move it's you know it's like it's like fargo you know a, a character doing something so completely out of character uh well of course i'm talking about william h macy there uh, and then getting himself in real real trouble i think you better take it for a trial spin i don't want any bad word of mouth about california charlie i'd really rather not can't we just settle this and i uh might as well be perfectly honest with you, ma'am. It's not that I don't trust you, but... Uh, but what? Is there anything so terribly wrong about 
making a decision and wanting to hurry? Do you think I've stolen my car? Oh, ma'am. <laughs> All right, let's go inside. I'm thinking also about audiences in 1960 and about like uh, you know by by this point they were probably so engrossed in the story and what was going to happen next and the suspense of the situation that you know the idea that that Vera Miles was credited as the as the lead in the film was probably not even occurring to them at this point you know it's like it's and I think they probably thought I mean they knew something bad happens in the shower uh, but again because Hitchcock was sort of planning that subliminally you know like planning Vera Miles subliminally in his trailer they probably thought that's something bad happens to Vera Miles you know the idea that something bad would happen to Janet Lee was just unconscionable they couldn't think it they couldn't imagine it um, and that's also part of the shock by the way it's like that was the first time that a major movie star a likable major movie star was being murdered uh, in cold blood in a very indulgent way <laughs> Yeah, I mean, she's doing everything wrong. She's so unprepared. Thank you. Three three men watching her. And now she's, you know, again, you know, as those voices go through her head, the way, of course, Norman has voices in his head as well. Uh, you know, look at this, the, the camera, right? We're watching her, but she's also watching us. She's looking at us. It's an incredible bond, this connection that we have with Marion Crane. Officer, that was the first time I ever saw the customer high pressure the salesman. Somebody chasing her? I better have a look at those papers, Charlie. She looked like a wrong one to you? Acted like one. The only funny thing, she paid me $700 in cash. Yes, Mr. Lowry. Carolyn, Ryan still isn't in? No, Mr. Lowry, but then she's always a bit late on Monday mornings. You know, it's also so important, I think, on a pure sort of character level with these voices that we're hearing now is that, um, you know, she's struggling with her decision, right? And so I think it's really important for us to be able to still relate to her. I mean, her death has to be devastating. We can't be so removed from her that we're not going to feel anything, right? So she's just a regular woman in a regular situation who's made a bad, bad decision. And, um, you know, and she's really struggling with it. Buzz me the minute she comes in. Call her sister. No one's answering at the house. I called her sister, Mr. Lowry, where she works. The music maker's music store, you know. And she doesn't know where Marion is any more than we do. You better run out to the house. She may be unable to answer the phone. Her sister's going to do that. She's as worried as we are. 
I haven't the faintest idea. As I said, I last saw your sister when she left this office on Friday. She said she didn't feel well and wanted to leave early. I said she could. That was the last I saw. Oh, wait a minute. I did see her sometime later, driving... Uh, I think you'd better come over here to my office, quick. Carolyn, get Mr. Cassidy for me. After all, Cassidy, I told you, all that cash. I'm not taking the responsibility. Oh, for heaven's sake. Girl works for you for ten years, you trust her. All right, yes, you better come over. And the night falls here, and, and of course she's never going to see the light of day again. Hey, this is the last time. Kiss off forty thousand dollars. I'll get it back, and if any of it's missing, I'll replace it with her fine, soft flesh. I'll track her, never you doubt it. Oh, hold on, Cass. I still can't believe it. Must. I'm sorry. Yeah, she does have a little nerve. Yeah, yeah. Could you it could. Well, you're talking about the rear projection yeah. here. What about it? Well, I mean, I mean, you know, part of it must have been the filming of the day, but it's 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 very artificial, but it's saying something. Well, yeah, I mean, it was all in studio. Actually, those were sort of rotating lights that they used. Uh, I mean, this is shot on set. Um, and so these are not, you're not looking at real cars. I mean, it's a real projection screen with, you know, uh, they actually filmed lights sort of going around. So it, to provide this illusion that cars were going on either side, you know, driving on either side of the car here. But, uh, yeah, this is completely artificial. But then again, you know, back in the day, it wasn't that, um, I mean, that's, that's what they would do, you know. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think it is, it is uh, most definitely worth mentioning that we are about to enter... Uh, a completely different reality, a dreamlike reality, um, you know, an Edward Hopper kind of, uh, you know, f- fever dream, if you will. I mean, the the the, norm, the, the Bates House was obviously based on, uh, you know, the House by the Railroad by by uh, uh, Edward Hopper, uh, but it's it's a mythical sort of. America, you know, it's a Route 66, nondescript. I mean, it could be in California, but it could be in Arizona. It could be really anywhere. Um, you know, there, there's no sort of specific. Uh, we were never given a specific in terms of where that motel is is located. You know what I mean? Um, so, but then again, the genre of the film is going to change. The mood of the film is going to change. It's like going to turn into gothic horror, um, and um, you know. And then it becomes also very expressionistic. Well, the shower scene is both impressionistic and expressionistic. Uh, it's it's everything. Yeah, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. Oh, sorry. She does. Well, that's going to change, of course, in a hurry when she meets Norman Bates. I mean, the, the scene in the parlor is extremely important for a lot of reasons. A lot of reasons. <laughs> but it's. Uh, um, but you're right. I mean, I think her demeanor very much has has changed, and uh, that, that's a really interesting image to remember. Uh, you know, when we see that final image of Norman Bates with the superimposition of of her, the mother's face. Um, all right.
Must be some kind of a mystery. I, I can't. You checked with the bank, no? They never laid eyes on her, no? You still trusting? Hot creeper. She sat there while I dumped her. I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, she's hearing now this this creep, you know, this creepy guy in her head. So that certainly prompts this kind of like, you know, okay, I did a trick on you. You know, I think there's a certain amount of satisfaction right here. Uh, she's feeling guilty, but also a certain amount of satisfaction. And I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier of how we feel as an audience, you know, is that, is that we're, we're feeling both, you know, we're both glad she did it, but also really uneasy about it. You know, it's, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Yes. What about it? Well, who's the psycho? I mean, that's <laughs> absolutely, and and that's and I think that 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 you know, again, if you were watching this movie in 1960, uh, you that was a very valid question to ask yourself: Is that psycho? What does that refer to? Oh, is that her? I mean, that's a very distinct possibility, you know. Um, until Norman shows up, <laughs> who's the bigger psycho? <laughs> Out. Hardly even looked at it, planning, and and even flirting with me. And now the rain, the rain starts hitting, and of course this is such a beautiful, you know, bit of foreshadowing uh, that here she is in her car, uh, and it's going to be drenched, and you know she's going to stop at a motel for safety. The irony being that, of course, she is safe in this dark place, this dark car in the middle of the night, you know, this rainy, rainy night. And then she's going to feel so safe in this bright, bright, white-tiled bathroom where she's going to be, you know, butchered. Ugh. By the way, just just you know, I have to say, I I'm going to recreate that scene with uh, you've you've seen her, Marley Renfro, in um, you know she, who was the the buddy double of uh, Janet Lee in in uh, in the shower. I'm going to recreate that driving scene with her, and that's going to be the way into the documentary. She's going to be sort of driving through the rain and stopping at the Bates Motel where our people are. So I'm really looking forward to that. Was that? The eyes. the eyes. What about it? Yeah. Well, she, yeah, she, she, she no longer feels safe. She no longer feels safe where she actually is safe, you know. <laughs> yes. Now, now it's going to get really interesting. <laughs> Was that? 
That's right, because Motel 6, they always keep the light on for you. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, I mean, if, if you think about, you know, we're not just talking about rain as also as, as a foreshadowing element. We're talking about the blades cutting through the rain, the way that the blade of Norman Bates is going to cut through the water and not even enter her body visually. It's insane how good this is. You know what I mean? It's insane. Yeah? I'm sorry? Oh, Bates a stab. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Wow. Okay, you just blew my mind right here. <laughs> yeah, no, this is really interesting. Wow. Did you just think of it or did, you, did somebody tell you about it? No? Because I've never heard this before. Well, it's a... Ta- it's a Satab, wow! Holy cow! This is good. This is really good. Um, but but you know, but this image here, you know, knowing what we know, um, to see the sign of the Bates Motel through the rain with the blade cutting through. I mean, oh my God! What an image! Oh my God! You know, it's it tells you everything. Hitchcock tells you everything without even without even saying a word. And this is, you know, this is the great thing about him is that um, it, what he achieved with this film in certain moments, I mean, especially the shower scene, and really you can sort of look at it as a, as a sequence, so it's really a shower sequence, um, is what he was talking about as pure cinema. This idea that you can tell a story completely visually without a single word, without a single line of dialogue. I mean, it's visual poetry of the highest order. Because it's so visceral, you know, it sort of goes straight for the gut. I mean, it's like she's she's mesmerized by it, you know, the way she looks at it. And again, you know, going back to this idea that that he's really starting to get into a very expressionistic style, not just in terms of lighting, but in terms of acting. You know, things are going to be really, really over the top. Um, you know, we're not watching reality anymore. We're in a very different kind of universe at the moment. It's, I mean, if you want to go all Campbellian on this, we're really crossing the threshold now. You know, uh, she's crossing through the rain, cross the threshold, there's no going back. She's going to go into the abyss. She's not going to go out. She's not going to go out of it. And just like Model 6, he did keep the light on for her, too.
right? I mean, go go look at you know, go Google House by the Railroad, uh, Edward Hopper, and uh, you know, this is this is it right here, and and it's not just the house, but if you if you if you think of Edward Hopper, you think of these sort of lonely souls. You think of an America that was changing, people trying to get as fast as they could from Los Angeles to New York, and all these little towns getting abandoned. Uh, and you know, motel owners being left with those places where they had to change the bedsheets with you know nobody even there. I mean, Hitchcock was really saying something very profound about America and and about an America changing and people people being left behind. And this is what Norman Bates really represents in in Psycho as well. So so we're not just talking about a trick, you know. I mean, Hitchcock was uh, was really really saying something with this movie as well. Uh, there's mother. <laughs> and you know, this this is uh, uh, another signifier that this is a trick. You know, there there. You know, we've been watching this moment here in real time. Uh, there is not conceivably any there's not enough time for Norman Bates, who was wearing the dress and the wig, to change into his clothes. You know, I mean, what did he have like fifteen seconds and he's running out? Uh, this is not possible, okay? So this is Hitchcock very aware of the fact that he's playing a trick on us, and it doesn't matter to him because it's all about the trick. shots, you know, I just can't get over these shots of watching her, you know, we're looking at her through this sort of curtain of rain. Oh, man. Yeah. Gee, I'm sorry I didn't hear you in all this rain. Go ahead in, please. I didn't hear you in all this rain. And boy, is he going to hear her under the water from the shower, isn't he? Screaming her head off. <laughs> and another mirror, right? Dirty night. You have a vacancy. <laughs> Dirty oh, night. We have twelve vacancies. Twelve cabins, twelve vacancies. They uh, they moved away the highway. See, and that's what I was talking about. You know, this is this is the the America changing. Um, yep. Oh, I thought I'd gotten off the main road. I knew you must have. Nobody ever stops here anymore unless they've done that. But there's no sense dwelling on our losses. We just keep on lighting the lights and following the formalities. Your home address. Oh, just the time will do. Los Angeles. So this is a very... Very important moment. He's hesitating. Uh, he almost went for key number three, <laughs> and of course he's going to key. He's going to go to key number one, uh, and and room number one is where bad things happen. 
You know, it's this. Watch him. I mean, as a as an actor, uh, the greatest moment for me of of Norman Bates are the silent moments, the this sort of subtle little beats where you see his wheels turning and you wonder what is going through his mind right now. It's great acting, and in fact, Hitchcock was very, um, uh, you know, just really let him. Uh, do a lot of that stuff. Um, didn't direct him a great deal. Cabin one. It's closer in case you want anything. Right next to the office. I want sleep more than anything else, except maybe food. Well, there's a big diner about 10 miles up the road, just outside of Fairvale. Am I that close to Fairvale? 15 miles. I'll get your bags. Stuffy in here. So you'll notice the birds right here, of course. And now what's really interesting too is that they're those are those are tiny little birds. They're like little finches, you know, very harmless uh, birds. We're going to see very different kind of birds in his office. Well, the uh, mattress is soft and. There's hangers in the closet and stationery with Bates Motel printed on it in case you want to make your friends back home feel envious. <laughs> and the, uh, over there. Uh, what a moment. You know, he won't say it. He just won't say it. The bathroom. Yeah. Um, okay, so another thing I want to say, uh, I might as well say it now. Uh, <laughs> And we're going to take a break very, very shortly, I promise. Um, So uh, the fact that Hitchcock is uh, is making or chose this white bathroom as the stage for the the most gruesome murder in the history of movies up to this point uh, is 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 truly significant. I mean, first of all, it's uh, you know there's nowhere to hide. It's this bright you know white tiled bathroom but Hitchcock was uh, Victorian and uh, uh, if you look at Hitchcock's body of work you will see again and again and again and again these sort of pristine white bathroom you'll see it in the lodger you see it in, in Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Smith you see it in the 1934 version of The Men Who Knew Too Much you see it in North by Northwest I mean you, you can go on and on and on and so he is here breaking with his Victorian heritage he is defiling the purity the sanctity of the bathroom i mean this is hitchcock breaking with everything we knew and expected of him this is a major moment in uh in movie history and in every possible way you can think of well uh, if, if you want it. not to mention that it's it's it the, to to do to do this murder, to stage this murder with 78 setups in a bright white bathroom and not reveal who you know the, the murderer is is extraordinarily well done. And I'll I'll give you a few a few uh, I'll tell you a few tricks about that when we get to it. I think just just tap on the wall. I'll, I'll be in the office. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Bates. Norman Bates. And another mirror shot here, of course. 
Um, the uh, uh, what's so cool now in terms of story because you know again if you think in just a pure terms of story like why what are we doing here what is the story about now why are we stopping at this motel you know but we're you know Norman Bates is an extraordinary likable character uh, you know he's he's laying the groundwork for us to start attaching to him because we're not going to have any other options <laughs> when she's gone he's going to be our way into the story but also now we're starting to think in terms of well okay you know maybe maybe these guys should be together you know that'd be easier right and he's a lot more likable than John Gavin so why is she so interested in in him just the way that we wondered in Vertigo by the way why is this guy so obsessed with Kim Novak when you know you've got you You've got Midge right there, and you know maybe he should be with her. So this is this, this sort of typical Hitchcock making us question uh, not just our allegiances, but also uh, whether we should go along with what the characters actually want in the story. You're not really going to go out again and drive up to the diner, are you? No. Well, then would you do me a favor? Would you have dinner with me? I was just about to myself. You know, nothing special, just sandwiches and milk, but... I'd like How nice and wholesome, right? Sandwiches and milk. Could very much if you'd come up to the house. I, I don't set a fancy table, but the kitchen's awful homey. I'd like to. All right, uh, you, you get yourself settled and, and take off your wet shoes, and I'll be back as soon as it's ready. Okay. With my, with my trusty umbrella. <laughs> They're very harmless birds in this room, you know. The sound work also, by the way, of Mother, the way that Hitchcock did it, he actually had three different, uh, you know, uh, voice actors record it. And he he used different words from different actors. So you never quite, it never really feels like it's a single person. It feels like this sort of voice that is not real, that is, again, completely expressionistic and surreal. Uh, he played a lot of little tricks on, on you like that. Mother, she's just a stranger. She's hungry and it's raining out. Mother, she's just a stranger. As if men don't desire strangers. As if... Oh, I refuse to speak of disgusting things because they disgust me. You understand, boy? 
Go on, don't tell us you'll not be appeasing her ugly appetite with my food or my son. Or do I have to tell her because you don't have the guts? Huh, boy? You have the guts, boy? Shut up! Shut up! you some trouble no uh, mother my mother uh, what is the phrase she isn't qu quite herself today <laughs> oh man that is such good writing <laughs> you shouldn't have bought it I really don't have that much of an appetite yeah he's got a reflection yeah um, but see those lines, you know, this is the great the great thing about obviously both Robert Block and and uh, uh, Joe Stefano's contributions to this is that is that it they make the movie so much better, you know, the second time around or the third time or the fifty second time. Uh, <laughs> no, they they really do. Um, anyway. Oh, I'm sorry. I wish you could apologize for other people. Don't worry about it. But as long as you're fixed to supper, we may as well eat it. Great acting. It, it might be uh, nicer and warmer in the office. Yeah, yeah, you're right. He seems, um, um, yeah, he seems a lot more interested in her. Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason. Well, hold on, let's wait for this thing to go through here. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that's why that's why we you know we like him. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. He does, yeah. Well, until that point, for sure. But that's not really him, though, right? It's, it's mother. Right. So, yeah. Training. Uh, eating in an office is just, just too officious. I, I have the parlor back here. All right. Boy, this is where it gets really intense. Um, so, look. I mean, I, I I'm just going to do this like the way I would do it, and then. And then we'll see how late it gets, and you know, I'm 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 totally gonna take my foot off the pedal after the shower scene, or um, or maybe we just call it a night. We you know we'll see how it goes. But uh, I just really want to go through this because, uh, I mean, of course we're not at the shower scene yet, um, but we're we're getting we're getting dangerously close. So, 
Okay. You guys ready? Okay. All right. So, um, you know, <laughs> talking about birds, um, and those are obviously going to play, uh, you know, uh, certainly a, a visual role in this scene as it unfolds. Uh, but those are far more dangerous birds. I mean, in fact, this is an owl that is in mid-flight, you know, looking like it's ready to pounce. Uh, on you, and so we're going to start getting these like ideas now or motifs of you know the birds watching Norman watching Marion, you know, or I mean, really, we're watching the birds watching Norman watching Marion, you know. Yeah, and of course, these particular birds, uh, we're going to see them three years later in The Birds. Uh, I will talk at some point about that painting uh, right behind Norman here. Very, very important painting, Susanna and the Elders, uh, from the Book of David. Uh, I'll tell you about that when, uh, when it actually becomes a, a prop. Sit down. Very kind. It's all for you. I'm not hungry. Go ahead. You, you eat like a bird. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's all, it's all right there. And it, you know, this is where, and you know, David, we were just talking about this, right? It's like, at what point is it? Is it all planned, or, or does it just become this sort of happy coincidence? Uh, I mean, again, in this particular case, you know, thinking about the story of the birds not having been even written, uh, it was a visual motif that must have been in, in Hitchcock's mind. I mean, he did not know he was going to make the birds next, but he did. And so I think this is you know, one of those signs of... This mic is doing weird thing, isn't it? No. Okay, fine. Uh, you know, this is Hitchcock um, operating on such a level that without knowing it, he was really planting the seeds for, you know, for his next movie. Quick question. Yeah. Isn't that up to, like, the production designer or somebody who's going to put birds on the wall? No. Not with Mr. Hitchcock. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, I think there are certain directors, obviously, who will you know, who will give a lot more freedom, you know, to, um, uh, you know, to their set designers and props, you know, people. But uh, Hitchcock was known for being very, very specific. In fact, uh, please remind me when we get to the shower scene to talk to you about melons. Can you remind me? Can somebody? Okay. Mental note. When the stabbing begins, remind me to talk about melons, please, because that's very important. Okay. All right. Melons, melons, melons. The fruit, the fruit. Yes, cassava melons, very specifically. <clears throat> but of course, yes. <laughs> you know, of course. No, not really. Anyway, I hear the expression "eats like a bird" is really a false, false, falsity, because. Birds really eat a tremendous lot. So, uh, just to follow yeah. up on that, yeah. when he 
stutters on the word false. Mm -hmm. Is that a is that an embellishment of the actor, or is that in the script? No, I, I think that was actually an, an embellishment from the actor. He did a lot of little things. Uh, in fact, you're going to see him also eating uh, candy corn, um, and that was something that he came up with. And you know, Hitchcock was. Um, uh, known for you know I mean he would he would accept an idea people would come up to him with an idea and say I want to try this I want to do this and he would pretty much on the spot say yes or no when he said no there was no going back it was no uh, yeah uh, but but in this particular instance <clears throat> sorry Anthony Perkins came up with and said you know I want to use I think Norman Bates would eat candy corn which of course is a Halloween candy you know we could yeah uh, it's also what birds Candy, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. They're also dagger shaped. Yeah, absolutely. Um, ex exactly. You can. Get, there, was that different colors? Oh yeah, the stripes, the stripes of the candy corn, S split person, <clears throat> split personality. Oh my gosh. Um, but uh, but in this particular instance, he said yes. So, <clears throat> but. I don't really know anything about birds. My hobby is stuffing things. Yeah, so this is perhaps where we uh, <laughs> we bring up the fact that Norman Bates was uh, modeled after Ed Gein, uh, the killer who, that's right, Wisconsin, yeah, who, uh, of course, um, walked around with his mother's skin on... You know, I mean, just, I mean, really, wrapped around himself. Uh, pretty uh, disturbing guy, uh, who was also the inspiration, by the way, for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, for um, also the Silence of the Lambs. Um, yeah, so, but that was the first, the first uh, instance. You know, taxidermy. And I guess I'd just rather stuff birds because... You know, and, and if you think about the fact that he stuffed his mother, and that you know, uh, you can look at the, the word, you know, the term bird, right? This woman's a bird, and he stuffed her. It gets really creepy. You know, it's it's all this little, <laughs> uh, you know, there's those little innuendos that once again, when you've seen the film, uh, it it takes a completely different resonance. It seems like it's very casual, you know. Uh, small talk, but it's so much more. I hate the look of beasts when they're stuffed. You know, foxes and chimps. Some some people even stuff dogs and cats, but oh, I can't do that. And that's uh, the great thing about Norman Bates is that he's he's such a sweet guy. You know, he eats candy corn. He's very polite. He doesn't want to step into her, you know, into her bedroom. He's like, let's go in the office instead. I'm bringing you sandwiches and milk. He's so wholesome and nice and so, so troubled. <laughs> I think only birds look well stuffed because, well, because they're kind of passive to begin with. You know, again, you, you you sort of look at almost every single line of dialogue, and there's this double meaning right there. You know, you, you even see those little birds right by the phone. You know, there's some. There's one on the base. There's one on the what? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is it like a sugar? Maybe this is for the sugar or something. But yeah, it's a bird. It's a strange hobby. Curious. Uncommon too. Oh, I imagine so. 
And it's uh, it's not as expensive as you'd think. It's cheap, really. You know, needles, thread, sawdust. The chemicals are the only thing that, that, that cost anything. A man should have a hobby. Well, it's... It's more than a hobby. <laughs> a hobby's supposed to pass the time, not fill it. But see, I mean, think about how we're reacting because of what we know, you know, and, and think about, again, the resonance of this scene uh, in 1960 when you didn't know anything about it. And, and, you know, going back to the knowledge also that audiences had in 1960, it's, it's really worth mentioning that, you know, well, obviously we're talking about a world without Internet back then, right? Uh, people were not able to, you know, to, to give provide spoilers in the same way as we do today. Um, Hitchcock bought... Every single copy of the Robert Block novel that he possibly could get get his hands on to make sure that you know very very few people uh, would uh, would read and, and know you know what the twist was going to be. It's so interesting to me, you know, the master of suspense going to this great length to create a movie with essentially a twist. You know, it's very un-Hitchcock-like and yet also oh Hitchcock-like to create that trick. Is your time so empty? No. Well, I, I run the office and uh, tend the cabins and grounds and, and do little uh, errands for my mother, the one she allows I might be capable of doing. Do you go out with friends? <laughs> well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. <laughs> <laughs> You've never had an empty moment in your entire life, have you? Only my share. Where are you going? I didn't mean to pry. I'm looking for a private island. What are you running away from? So, <clears throat> this line of questioning is very important now, too, because, you know, obviously, again, we have a character who's made... Uh, a bad decision, a poor decision, something, you know, she's done something she shouldn't have done. And... Uh, and the line of questioning that Norman is going through right now is going to sort of, essentially, it's like he's holding a mirror to her. And she is going to realize what she's done and she's going to, you know, decide, make the decision to go back and return the money. Why do you ask that? No. People never run away from anything. The rain didn't last long, did it? You know what I think? I think that... we're all in our private traps. Clamped in them. And none of us can ever get out. This is where it also strikes you that... um, those two characters, as different as they are, obviously... They're so similar, uh, you know. They're really both trapped in their own way by what they've done, you know. We scratch and, and claw, but only at the air, only at each other. You know, and then if you start thinking about the birds scratching and clawing at the air, three years later, you your mind goes, you know, it's crazy. And for all of it, we never budge an inch. Sometimes we deliberately step into those traps. <laughs> As she just did, you know. I was born in mine. I don't mind it anymore. 
Oh, but you should. You should mind it. Oh, I do. But I say I don't. You know, if anyone ever talked to me the way I heard, the way she spoke to you. And look at the change, you know. Um, now she's talking about the mother, and in fact she is... Um, you know, she's starting to question him and in fact question how mother is treating him and he now becomes this predator, you know, this low angle, uh, very threatening shot. And his demeanor changes. Sometimes when she talks to me like that, I feel I'd like to go up there and curse her and, and, and leave her forever. Or at least a fire. But I know I can't. She's ill. She sounded strong. No, I mean ill. She had to raise me all by... So take a, take a good look at that painting uh, right just just to the left of him right now. Um, again, I'll, I'll get back to that, but this is um, <clears throat> Susanna and the others. Yourself after my father died. I was only five, and it must have been quite a strain for her. She didn't have to go to work or anything like that. He left her a little money. Anyway, a few years ago, Mother met this man, and he he talked her into building this motel. He could have talked her into anything. And when he died, too, it was just too great a shock for her. And the way he died... I guess there's nothing to talk about while you're eating. Anyway, it was just too great a loss for her. She had nothing left. Except you. A son is a poor substitute for a lover. Yeah, well, again, you know. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) That's all I will say. Why don't you go away? (laughs) To a private island like you? No, not like me. This is where she starts doubting what she's done, you know? I couldn't do that. Who'd look after her? She'd be alone up there. The fire would go out. It'd be cold and damp like a grave. If you love someone, you don't do that to them even if you hate them. You understand? I don't hate her. I hate what she's become. I hate the illness. Wouldn't it be better if you put her someplace? Look at that. You know, the way his look, you know, shifts. It's incredible. He's being, he's under attack right now. You mean an institution? A madhouse? And this is where we really start getting the first glimpse of the other Norman Bates. And she feels the threat. People always call a madhouse someplace, don't they? Put her in someplace. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it to sound uncaring. What do you know about caring? Have you ever seen the inside of one of those places? 
laughing and the tears and the cruel eyes studying the cruel eyes studying you you know it's all right there in the dialogue because was that voyeurism. voyeurism of course but you know if you think about the cruel eyes studying you and and you sort of extend that idea with like the cruel eyes of death studying you uh well this is what mother you know when we see her it's those cruel eyes those empty sockets staring at you the way the empty sockets in the man the farmer in the birds right he gets his eyes pecked out remember that and you know and and um uh she finds the tippy hedron finds the um Actually, it's not to be Edwin, it's the old lady, uh, you know, finds that corpse and with his, the, the eyes, you know, pecked out again, looking, looking at us. Um, you know, those dead birds. I mean, those birds are dead. They're looking at us. Uh, later on, Janet Lee, dead, will be looking at us. The drain, of course, is an eye, you know, a kind of a black, you know, dark vortex looking at us. You could go on and on and on. You. My mother there. But she's harmless. <laughs> He's telling the truth too. She is completely harmless. <laughs> she's as harmless as one of those stuffed birds. I am sorry. <laughs> I, I only felt it seems she's hurting you. I meant well. People always mean well. They cluck their thick tongues and shake their heads and suggest oh so very delicately. You know, then you can think about, you know, what kind of animal clucks their tongues too, right? Birds, perhaps. Any shifts? Of course, I've suggested it myself. But I hate to even think about it. She needs me. It's not as if she were a, a maniac, a raving thing. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. And, you know, obviously he's not just talking about himself here. He's really talking about, about Marion Crane as well and what she just did. Uh, and those words are, <clears throat> excuse me, are resonating with her. You know, it's uh, it's not just um, you know foreshadowing or, or dialogue that will resonate. You know, the second time you watch the movie, but it's also it, it plays a very important role. This scene plays a very important role in the story itself, in the sense that um, you know that conversation changes the course of what she is going to do. Haven't you? I mean, look at the way she's holding herself, you know? Yes. Sometimes just one time can be enough. Thank you. Thank you, Norman. Norman. He's so oh, you, you're scary not and likable, you know, it's... Uh, and we get to really experience him, experience him through her eyes at, at this point. Um, you know, this is very much also a point of view movie. Uh, and uh, obviously everything that's been happening up to this point um, has been through, through the, the point of view of Marion. And this is also about the shift. You're not going back to your room already? I'm very tired. And I'll have a long drive tomorrow, all the way back to Phoenix. 
Really? I stepped into a private trap back there. And I'd like to go back and try to pull myself out of it. So this is key stuff, right? Because now she has made the decision. I'm going to go back. I'm going to return the money. I've made a mistake. It, it, it makes the shower scene so much crueler. Because this character that we followed, you know, who has made finally the right call, uh, and in fact, the shower is very much a, a cleansing of her sins, uh, and she's still going to die. Oh, it's too late for me, too. Are you sure you wouldn't like to stay just a little while longer? Just for talk? Well, I'd like to, but... All right. Well, uh, I'll see you in the morning. I'll bring you some breakfast, all right? What time? Very early. Dawn. All right, Miss... Uh... Crane. Crane, that's it. Good night. Hmm. Right, and of course, she wrote Mary Samuels on the ledger. So, you know, this is going to give him, uh, you know, uh, ammunition. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that earlier. Yeah, that... The city of Phoenix and uh, and Marion Crane. Yeah, this is all. This is all right there. Here's the candy corn. And you know. Uh, in, a, in point of view movies, right, we would typically go out and stay with her, right? She's our main character. But no, now, strangely, strangely, things are starting to happen. We're staying with Norman Bates. And in fact, we're going to be watching her. So there's a transference. Very strange, very uh, unusual for this to happen. I mean, why are we suddenly staying with Norman? This is Hitchcock preparing us. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's everywhere. It's, it's mirrors, it's reflections, it's, uh, it's very much a motif. I mean, in fact, um, you know, Hitchcock told his uh, production team at some point during the pre-production, he says, you know, I want, I want a lot of mirrors, I want more mirrors. Is there any shot uh, of him that's not, doesn't have a shadow or a reflection? That's a good question. We'd have to go through it. If you see one, let me know. Uh, probably. I mean, definitely shots in the, in the parlor, close-ups. I mean, in the scene that we just saw, you know, the, that sort of close-up didn't have any any shadows or mirrors. Very much, very much. You know, and, and again, if you look at the lighting now versus the lighting prior, this is very, um, you know, this is this is expressionistic. Uh, it's uh, you know, and, and Hitchcock was, you know, in his early days was really trained with, uh, you know early sort of German expressionistic, you know, movies. Um, you know, you can look at Murnau, you know, films and you're starting to we're starting to get into that kind of 
uh, that kind of reality now. So, oh, let me, can I go frame by frame? Why can I, oh, I can only go forward, seriously? Okay, well, anyway, so, well, <coughs> Susanna and the Elders, uh, um, there have been numerous, numerous painted versions of that, that story. Um, again, from the Book of David, Susanna basically bathing in her, bathing, <laughs> Uh, not a coincidence in her garden uh, being watched by two lecherous old men uh, when she started making her way back to her house they stopped her and said uh, we know we're going to tell that you were meeting this young man in, uh, in your uh, garden uh, unless um, we have sex with you and uh, so basically blackmailed her she refused to be blackmailed um, and was uh, sentenced to death as a result of that um, um, David showed up uh, and essentially said wait a minute uh, these two gentlemen are actually not telling the truth you should probably interrogate them separately and they both came up with conflicting accounts uh, basically one of them said that she was under an oak tree and the other one said she was under a different kind of tree and uh, um, essentially that, that saved her and uh, they ended up being um, being sentenced to death as a result of that. So, so you know, in <laughs> this painting contains um, elements of foreshadowing both of her death, uh, of, of being seen as she bathes, bathes and uh, of the, the man, in this case, uh, Norman, being the voyeur, uh, essentially being, being sentenced as a result of, of, um, of what he did. So uh, it, it seems like a very simple thing, and it contains so much. And, you know, he removes that painting. You know, um, um, one of, I can't even remember who he was, one of the interviewees, you know, I'm going to stop this thing, it's so for some reason. Okay, can you hear this? Okay. Um, somebody I interviewed, I can't remember who it was, uh, mentioned the fact that that sort of big hole, I mean, clearly what's so kind of creepy about this is there, there's a sense that he's done this many times, right? I mean, this hole is large enough to, you know, to fit his head, but... but um, but somebody mentioned that this is actually it was large enough to fit Hitchcock's head, and that this is really Hitchcock, you know, being the voyeur. I mean, Hitchcock, as we all know, I mean, we start getting into this whole thing of like the Hitchcock blonde, Hitchcock being obsessed with these these blondes that, of course, you know, he desired, but you know, could not, um, you know, could not have sex with, and uh, you know, and then you start getting into this sort of uh, psychology here of is this Hitchcock finally 
um, you know, killing off this the object of his desire. Uh, is this Hitchcock saying, "Look at me, I'm this, I'm this dirty old, <laughs> this dirty old man, uh, and this is me watching, and this is me killing"? Uh, you know, you can go, you know, quite deep into this. And she disrobes. And now, you know, this is really the shot. In fact, I don't know if you remember seeing very briefly uh, this little doodle in the the uh, sizzle that I showed you uh, of this shot. Uh, that's actually a doodle from Hitchcock himself. And uh, you know, I've, when I've gone I've gone through his papers, it's so interesting because I've I found a bunch of of you know like inked doodles that are very very pornographic. Uh, I mean, this is there's that, but then there's these really f- Grotesque little doodles of like you know naked women with their you know their their legs spread open, and this is Hitchcock, you know like this is the kind of stuff he would he was doodling on you know uh, uh, on the set <laughs> or in pre production on psycho um, it's very very interesting um, but this is the this is the um I mean, it's, you know, one of my favorite shots ever, and certainly in Psycho. Uh, It is the the transference now of the POV. You know, we are very much now with Norman. And again, whether we want it or not, you know, in that opening scene, we were made to watch this thing. We, We didn't really necessarily want to see it, but we did. You know, we were made into voyeurs. But now there's a sense like, this is wrong. Why are we... Why are we with Norman? Why are we suddenly watching her disrobe and get into the shower? Uh, but but Hitchcock makes us do that, and he's going to punish us for it. And I think he's very much again questioning this idea of the gaze, this idea of you know of what it's what it means to be uh, you know in an audience watching. Um, uh, so he's he's really questioning the ritual of of you know watching movies. This is this is where you know pure cinema starts you know taking place. Everything that we're going to see now doesn't have a single line of dialogue. And if you look at you know Norman, you can read so much, so much into those little moments. You know, he's looking outside. What is he thinking? What's going through his brain? You know, is he is he still Norman right now? Is he saying, "Would Mother disapprove of what I'm doing? Is this why he's putting the painting back?" Um, is he going to talk to her? Is he going to tell mother? There's, there's this kind of, uh, there's so many emotions going through, and and it's very, very palpable. Again, you know, constantly looking at the house, right? Constantly thinking about mother and look you know I mean look look at this house you know it's completely surreal we're in a we're very much in a gothic horror kind of uh, scenario right now it's, it has nothing to do with the beginning of the film we're in a completely different universe yeah 
No, no, they built it. They built it. What a great shot. This moment where he's thinking about going up, you know, to to talk to to talk to his mother. Um and he's not going to do that. And this is of course our first glimpse of the interior of the house. to the kitchen which of course he was talking about earlier it's a very homey kitchen and what a sense of loneliness you know I mean this is the loneliest guy you've ever ever seen (laughs) and so this is you know also now this is Hitchcock playing a little bit of a trick on us because he is you know she's doing her calculations right she is, I mean, come on, 40,000 minus 700. Do you really need to write this down? <laughs> right? I mean, come on, she's smarter than this. We all know this. Um, but he is doing it for the very purpose of, you know, look, again, you got to look at this as, as Hitchcock not just playing a trick on us, not just playing a trick on audiences in 1960, but playing a trick on the censors. Uh, Hitchcock wanted to see how far he could take this thing, how far he could go. Um, and one of the things that had never been done before is show a toilet, right? Uh, and in fact, a toilet flushing. Like, he, this was definitely not going to pass censorship. Well, how does he circumvent this idea? Well, he's going to have her do the tally and then rip it up and then throw it in the toilet. And flush the evidence. Because then it becomes a clue later on in the film, right? When Sam and Lila show up and they find a little piece of paper. And this is the evidence that they need uh, to know that Marion was actually at the Bates Motel. Without that bit of evidence, uh, they, you know, uh, that's it. You know, Norman is, is, is free. Free as a bird, as it were. Uh, but uh, so, so again, this is a complete trick. This is also Hitchcock essentially telling us this is all a trick. This is not real. I'm doing it because I want to play one on the censors right now. And he did. First, first toilet shot ever, <laughs> ever, <laughs> right? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to play the scene all the way through, and then we're going to, yeah, so, so you can re-experience it uh, without me saying a word, and then we'll go back to this point, and then we'll just talk the hell out of it.
Okay, and he comes running out. So, how was how was it uh, watching this? Uh, is it, was it the first time for anybody here? It's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. How was that? How was that? Yeah. Heart pounding, huh? But of course you knew about it, right? Yeah. But it's still heart pounding. It's very visceral, right? What about you? Oh, I see. Well, we don't know if we're going to watch the entire movie yet. <laughs> um, but uh, cool. Okay. So we have a lot to talk about. That is an understatement. Okay. All right. Let's play here. We might go. Yeah, we'll see how we do this. Oof. Okay. So again, you know, think about think about being, if we can, you know, being an audience in 1960, watching Janet Lee disrobe, um, you know, big star. You know, again, this is not the kind of stuff that you would see. Uh, so, for you know, a lot of people, there was a certain, very much a titillating factor, and and yet the sense of like. Are we really supposed to watch this? Is she really going to, you know, to be naked? What's going on here? Like, this is Hitchcock completely taking us into brand new territory, uh, you know. And uh, like I said, this is something he set up with the very first scene as we go through the window. This is, again, something we're seeing, you know, with, uh, with the toilet shot. Brand new territory. So the shower curtain, uh, this is also, you know, those sort, those artistic choices are so precise because, you know, it is not transparent um, because that would, re- you know, that would reveal too much. And, and again, you know, he had to work, you know, this is a very, very fine line with the sensor, sensors. Uh, it is not opaque because we wouldn't be able to see enough, right? So he had to titillate just enough. So it is translucent. Uh, it is just the right shower curtain <laughs> uh, to provoke the kind of reactions in different you know members of his audience that he wanted to provoke and also to to just be on this fine line on just the right side of censorship and so here the acting is you know and once again you 're looking at this bright white safe you know this is the safety of the you know, the bathroom, she has made her decision. Uh, this is going to be this sort of cleansing uh, of her sins. Uh, and the acting uh, becomes very, again, uh, expressionistic, over the top. Uh, you know, she's going to have the, you know, she's unwrapping the, the soap, turning on the water, and it's this almost like, you know, it, we're going to indulge here. Right, um, she's very, very, very happy to be taking this shower. <laughs> so this is also, uh, you know, thinking about all the tricks. Also, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to 
get into all the technical tricks. Just watch my movie, okay? But uh, get into all the technical tricks of, of, of Hitchcock. And again, at the time, you know, remarkable stuff. But, uh, you know, how did Hitchcock achieve this shot? Well, he blocked some of the holes in the middle uh, and basically moved the camera back so the water would be just going to the side uh, of, uh, of the lens. Um, but, you know, this is the impassive eye of the shower. This is yet another gaze, another eye, but it's also Janet Lee's point of view, right? We are now in the shower with her. So even though we are the voyeur and technically we are going to be the ones stabbing her, we are also the ones being stabbed. The point of view is going to change. I mean, it's going to go, well, psycho. Uh, but, you know, the shots, the, the, the editing of, of, of the movie is going to go completely, uh, completely psycho. You know, look at her. You know, she's, it's, it's over the top, you know, happy. Yeah, it's, it's almost like an ad, you know, like a, like a soap ad. It's not, you're, you're, like, you're like, am I watching a Hitchcock film here? Like, what's going on? You know, this is not, this is not a Hitchcock film. So, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and also the composition of the shots are, are so important. You know, here she is you know, lower right of the frame. Um, you know, just remember that composition because that's going to come back. And so this is... All right, shoot. Not yet, but thanks for reminding me. Thanks for reminding me. Uh, just need to go back just to here. Was that... Yeah, it's when the stabbing begins. We'll talk about the melons. So we're going back. So yeah, I meant to go frame by frame here for at one point. Uh, because this is... All right. All right, so this is, there's a cut coming up, a, a jump cut that Walter Murch told me about. It's what he calls the, the wet, the wet haircut. There, right? So, you know, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, and this is where the scene is so full of, of mysteries. It's almost like, it's, it, obviously it accelerates time, right, in the film here. But, um, it's it's pretty awkward, and you know he feels that it's one of those those moments that you know may have been discovered in the in the editing room. Uh, you don't really know why. There's no real reason to have a jump cut here, except to start. You know, if it was intentional, which it may not may not have been, um, to to sort of you know create this this sense of acceleration towards the moment that we're all we're all waiting for, um, create a little bit of an ease perhaps. You know, um, or there was just possibly a glitch in the previous take, uh, and he couldn't use that shot, and therefore had to cut to the wet hair shot. I mean, it could be just as really as simple as that. Uh, we will never know. So now, you know, we're we're seeing you know again the shower, the shower head. 
but we are starting to remove ourselves, and this is where the camera is going to start doing some funny things. Uh, so far, we've been facing her in the shower, uh, looking at the you know the, the the tiled wall, but we're going to essentially uh, you know go on the other side now, which is, by the way, uh, you know, which, what we call crossing the line as, as filmmakers. Uh, you usually don't do that. Um, well, because it just creates a sense of, a sense of unease. And um, actually, Walter Murch was telling me, this is really, really cool. Well, actually, let me take you to that point so we can see it first. Uh, and again, right, so, so before she was facing the other, she was facing in this direction, right, but the camera was on the other side. And now we've crossed the line completely where we're from the perspective of the wall looking at the shower curtain, right? So this is usually a big no-no in filmmaking because it completely confuses your, your sense of perspective, right? There's this axis, and you usually stay within that axis. Um, uh, Ozu, the great Japanese filmmaker, used to do that quite a bit. Um, but... Uh, 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 Hitchcock here is is um, is doing it, and uh, you know Merch was telling me that that uh, crossing the line uh, works really well in scenes of both love and horror. If uh, which is so interesting because you know then we can get into love and horror, you know like romantic comedies and horror, and the fact that that uh, you know filmmakers of horror and and of romantic comedies actually use a lot of the same techniques for completely different ends. Uh, this is what's so cool. But I will encourage you to watch uh, or rewatch the movie Ghost, uh, which was actually edited by Walter Murch. And he, you know, because when I sent him an email, I said, you know, okay, when you told me this in the interview, can you give me an example of a really great, you know, romantic comedy where, where this happens? He said, watch the, the pottery scene with ghosts. And I swear to God, it's amazing. You watch that scene every, every, almost every cut. It's like you're, you're, crossing, you're crossing the line. And it creates this feeling of like euphoria. Um, and here, in the case of Psycho, it's going to create, create a sense of unease and horror. So, same technique, completely different result. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Of course. I mean, look. It's almost like a. It's a baptism. It's you know she's staking this water. I mean, look at look at her. It's like. Um, yeah, there's something really quasi-religious, I think, about about this. Um, but of course, you know, the reason the reason why Hitchcock is crossing the line here very specifically is to create vicarious suspense. Is to take us now to the point where we're going to see <laughs> this. And so, you know, we're talking about the composition of the shot. Now we have the mirror. Uh, you know, of the the the, sh- the shot prior, where you're seeing the tiles, it's the same same kind of shot, same kind of composition. Excuse me. But now we're seeing the shower curtain. Uh, a lot of negative space, right? Uh, so your eye naturally is drawn to that negative space, right? Instantly, you're wondering, why am I watching this? Why is this so off kilter? Well, that's because, of course, he wants us to see the door open, as it does right here. 
Okay. This is the moment. You know, I, I wish, I wish I could go back to 1960 and see and be in that first screening and see what happened. You know, like just wit- to witness that would have been extraordinary stuff. Completely. I mean, Completely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like. No. No. I mean, like I said, I after the shower scene. I mean, again, Hitchcock wanted to make this film because he wanted to make the shower scene. There is no question about it. And so, you know, I think that in a way, whatever happens after this doesn't matter so much. I mean, it's, there's good stuff, of course. But it really no longer matters in the same way, because I, I think his audience was still—they were still shaking, you know, from this for another forty-five minutes. You know, I mean, uh, yeah. So, um, okay. So, the, the vi- well, just a quick word about vicarious suspense here. Uh, by vicarious, I mean that we are experiencing suspense on behalf of the, the character here. She, we know something that she doesn't. The, the, in, the you know, immediate reaction is like, turn around, turn around, don't, you know. Uh, this, is, this is how we feel. Uh, but, of course, she's, she's not. Um, and, therefore, this is very much a moment of suspense. I mean, this is very sort of textbook Hitchcockian. And look at the shape of this uh, this head. You know, there's something also very surreal here. All right, so let me talk about this. Let me first reveal. So this actually is Margot Epper. Uh, Margot Epper was a stunt woman. She comes from a long line of stunt uh, people. Actually, some people in her family today are still uh, stunt uh, stunt actors. And uh, well, there's a couple of reasons for this. One, obviously, um, you know, Hitchcock did not want to reveal, uh, or or he didn't want any sort of um, hint that this was uh, Anthony Perkins. Uh, well, that this was no roommate. Sorry. Uh, but Anthony Perkins was uh, doing a play on Broadway at the time during during those particular shooting days. So, um, but you know, how do you achieve this effect uh, in this blinding white bathroom? Well, she's actually black faced here, and so they 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 yeah they blackened her face and then blackened it and blackened it. And, you know, they had to go darker and darker and darker to create this effect, but you can barely see her eyes. And, you know, what's, what's really sort of frustrating about, you know, in this day and age of digital technology and you're seeing those DVD and Blu-ray transfers and, um, you know, uh, those transfers, unless they're like Criterion Collection transfers, are usually, the, you know, the, someone's idea of what those movies are supposed to really look like and not the director of photography's idea. So you can see her eyes here a little bit, you know, um, and this is probably not what Hitchcock intended. I mean, I guarantee you that if you watch a 35mm print projected correctly of Psycho on the big screen, you're going to see a silhouette. You're not going to see those eyes watching you there. Although it is kind of interesting if you want to play with the idea of voyeurism that you're seeing eyes. But nevertheless. Okay. Uh, all right. 
Time for melons. Yeah, let's hear the first tab, though. Shall we? <laughs> You could really see the eyes there. Um, okay, I'm just going to go slowly. So look at this. So she turns around, and and you know the acting. Janet Lee's acting here is absolutely brilliant, by the way. Um, so oh my gosh, just so much to talk about. Jesus Christ. Uh, so she, the, the, here's the brilliant thing. Uh, Stephen Rebello, who wrote the book Alfred Hitchcock and the Making of Psycho, which became the movie Hitchcock came out in theaters recently uh, a few years ago which wasn't that great but anyway he's really great the book is great I, I got to interview him and he interviewed Janet Lee, and he asked her the question he said when you turned around and saw you know this figure attacking you what did you play I mean did you did you see a, a woman what did you see and she and he said that she played seeing and recognizing Norman Bates in drag. And, and how terrifying, this idea that, you know, that the last thing she sees is this guy who was so nice to her, who brought her you know, milk and, and sandwiches and, um, you know, and essentially convinced her to turn around and go home. And here he is wearing his you know, mother's wig. And he's the one who's going to kill her. I mean, what a horrifying, horrifying thought. So just a, you know, just a little inside scoop here on what Gently actually saw. And this is... Okay, so we're seeing a jump cut here from a close-up to an extreme close-up. And then we're going to see another extreme, extreme close-up on her mouth. Uh, this like boom, boom, boom sort of triple jump cut is something that a lot of people actually um, think is a Hitchcock thing because we also see it in the birds. I was talking about earlier the shot in the birds where uh, you know the guy's eyes are pecked out and we go. It's a very, it's the exact same sort of technique: close up, extreme close up, extreme extreme close up. Uh, but in fact, you can trace that back to. 1931, James Wells' Frankenstein. When the monster is revealed for the first time in that movie, and he turns around and you go boom, boom, boom. So uh, that is actually pre-Hitchcock, but very effective, right? Uh, sort of the horror going into her mouth, and it's looked like she's drooling like a, you know, like a mad dog. It's it's sort of it's both sexy and horrifying at the same time. And again, this this scene, like every shot, sort of makes you question what it is that you're watching. It's both beautiful and and horrifying. It's art and it's and it's lurid. You know, it's it's all of that. Look at that water. So and you know, this is what I'm talking about. Like this is the kind of shot that this is not mother's point of view. This is not. Marion's point of view, this is a third point of view, right? This is, this is us. So we're outside of the scene, we're in the scene, we're her with him, we're going absolutely crazy. We don't know what's going on, you know? Totally. Yeah. And the lines, you know, look at the lines. The knife is going to go down with, you know, in that same direction. I mean, the water is stabbing. The water is stabbing her, you know. And, you know, think again about all the censorship elements. Uh, Man, 
all the stuff he had to do to get this past the censors is insane. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of mystery around that. How exactly did he do that? I mean, um, you know. So there's a guy who lives on the East Coast that I'm thinking about interviewing. He's a bit crazy. Uh, his theory is, he, he's an editor, his theory is that in this shot, what you're seeing here is actually a hammer. Uh, and he will bet his, uh, you know, his career that it's a hammer, even though everybody who's was there on the set, including Marley, the, the body doubles it. No, there's never a hammer. It's, it's just a knife. So, but I mean, you have to admit it sort of looks like a hammer. <laughs> you know, uh, it's a bit weird. Um, all right, so melons. Uh, so when it was time for Hitchcock to. Uh, Am I getting too geeky, by the way? Is this uh, all right? You guys all right? You're, you're still with me? Okay, good. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit obsessed. Um, <laughs> just a little bit. Uh, so, so when it was time to come up with the sound, uh, because again, you're, you're talking about something, you know, if you think about death in American movies, uh, you know, prior to that point, uh, you know, there was this kind of like, uh, and then, you know, you fall over. Right, it was a very short, very quick thing. Um, now Hitchcock is like, you know, de- deconstructing death. He is uh, taking his time. He's being super indulgent. He's filming it over seven days. He's going to show it to us. Right? He's going to make us experience a, a gruesome murder in a way that we never have before. And so, of course. Uh, there was a time that you know now it's sort of a common thing, but you know back in the days, like how do you create that sound of a knife stabbing a living being? Um, and so he asked his prop guys to bring a, a ton of melons, all kinds of melons. And the story goes that uh, he had them stab the melons, and he closed his eyes, and he listened, and he listened, and he listened. And then he said one word. He said, cassava. And Mr. Hitchcock being Mr. Hitchcock, he wouldn't question. If he says cassava, then it is the cassava melon. And so they essentially, what they essentially ended up using is a mixture of the cassava melon with a sirloin steak uh, being stabbed. So... And uh, as a side note, melons are actually in season this month, and I'm going, I'm actually going to order about 20 different varieties of melons, and we're going to be stabbing melons, uh, and filming that, and and record the nuances of all these melons, and see, try to understand why why the cassava melon over the other melons. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, all right, so here. Uh, this is very much her point of view, but this is again, you know, this is also us. Look at that. We are being stabbed. It's so visceral and it's so powerful. And look at those cuts. You know, it's all, you know, there's a lot of suggestion. We don't see anything, and that is the the greatest trick of that of that scene. I mean, look at this is like a completely abstract shot, purely. You know, a lot of out of focus as well. And it's so beautiful. It is so beautiful to watch. That, you know, look at that point of view again. And you have to understand also, like, you know, the way that, I mean, we, uh, one thing that's really cool to do, which obviously we're not going to be able to do now, but if, like, if you use a little sort of ball 
to show where you know and on on like a red red ball or something on the screen to show where your eye is attracted to and see what happens during the stabbing scene your eye goes all over the place so that what happens to you uh is that you are you're experiencing the confusion as if you're in the shower the way that that marion is experiencing that that confusion and this is all done visually it's all done through cutting you know again you know out of focus shots and of course these these out of focus shots add to the it's almost like we're we're watching a documentary right this is this is real this is really happening you know and we can see now if we go in slow motion the the knife doesn't you know never comes close to her right never comes close to her I'm sorry? No, so so there's a reason, again, uh, she, she had a buddy double, Marley Renfro, who uh, was a Playboy bunny and uh, who was hired by Hitchcock because Janet Lee didn't want to be, you know, didn't want to be naked. She had actually a moleskin suit. Uh, and which was supposedly very, very uncomfortable. But all the shots that you see, <clears throat> in fact, I'm going to show you something very cool in a moment. Uh, all the shots that you see that where you don't see Janet Lee's face are actually Marley Renfro's. Uh, even though Janet Lee, in her book on Psycho, claimed that every, sh- you know, she said, yes, there was a model, but all the shots were mine. And I do have a scoop for you, though. They're not, and I can prove it. Yeah. You'll see. Yeah, she did. She did. And um, she did. And, and it, was really, it was really interesting that, um, you know, if you can picture this woman who was, this, you know, she was 19 at the time. Uh, and she was stark naked on the set. And if you can picture her, you know, just having a casual conversation with Mr. Hitchcock in his suit and tie, just talking about the scene, it's a it's a pretty cool picture. I, I wish we had those production stills. You know what I mean? Like that's really cool stuff. <laughs> but we don't. All right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. You know, you, you think about. You're looking at a shot like this. You know, I'm thinking about nowadays, Holly. You know, Universal Studios. Uh, it'd be like, what are you doing? You know, you're you're you can't use this. It's way out of focus. You know, but of course, this was Hitchcock's way of of doing what he did. You know, of of going past the sensors, and it adds so much, so much to the scene. We're back to her, and there's obviously that extraordinary sort of rhythmic quality to it, to the music, right? We're stabbing along with the music. I mean, the music itself is a stabbing sound, uh, if you think of it, right? And to think that Hitchcock wanted to have that film uh, or that scene without music is also incredible. Until Bernard Herrmann came and said, you know, um, I have an idea. (laughs) Um, Good thing he listened. You know, and look at that. We're, you know, he's stabbing to the right. She goes to the left. We get closer 
on Norman as he stands again. We get closer on her as she goes to the right. And it's all just in your head. You can hear the knife. You can see the knife, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, you can think about the, uh, you know, again, the blades, you know, cutting the rain on the... uh, yeah, you know, the wiper cutting the cutting the rain on the uh, on the windshield. Oops, and uh, you know now it's happening in real, happening for real. Everything here is out of focus. Absolutely everything, except of course the hand and the knife cutting through the water. It's just so incredibly powerful. The editing is remarkable. I mean, you know, I've um, I, I've been fortunate to interview a number of big, big editors, of course, including Walter Murch, including, you know, numerous Academy Award-winning editors. And it's so incredible that every single one of them talk about this as the greatest achievement in editing. Um, I, and, you know, and here we are 55 years later, and they will all point to a certain a particular cut, something. You know, they'll all show you something completely different. And, and they will all say, I've heard them all say, this is the greatest cut I've ever seen. You know, and I'm talking about some of the greatest editors in, in, in you know, contemporary editors in the history of cinema. So, um, look at that. Look at that, right? I mean, you could, you could really sort of frame, you know, all of these shots. Okay, so this <laughs> is the shot that uh, really completely tricked the censors. Uh, Hitchcock had a uh, rubber torso made for this uh, because, um, you know, uh, it was basically to make the studios believe that he wouldn't show an actual belly button because this is the first also belly button in the history of Hollywood cinema. Okay, uh, by the way. So, uh, and so he's, he essentially said, I made this, you know, I had him do this torso and it spurts out blood and it was marvelous and I just didn't use it. Uh, so this is in fact Marley Renfro and you know, there's a lot of speculation about do we see the knife going through the flesh? Do we see the knife going through the flesh? Well, no, we don't. We think we do, but what's going on here is that he had put a tiny little bit of fake blood on the tip of the knife and filmed it in reverse. So we had the knife essentially sort of lodged against, you know, her belly button right here. And uh, once again, how did he get this past the sensors? It's like, well, she she gets stabbed, you know, in this particular, you know, location. Well, we kind of have to show the belly button, don't we? It's a naked woman in a shower. There's no way around it, is there? Um, I mean, you, you have to sort of imagine how that was possible. All of all of what we're watching right now is 100% taboo in 1960. Was not going to pass. So, of course, that belly button was Marley Renfro's. And, and the film was condemned by the Legion of Decency. Yeah. The Catholic Church. Oh, of course, yeah. Of course. And, you know, and again, like... Partly because of the toilet. I'm sorry, partly because of the toilet, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, in, in one particular shot, I will. In one particular shot, I will prove to you. 
I'll prove to you. We're we're not quite there yet. So okay, all right. Here's another cool thing. Um, <laughs> so this is the first time we see blood. And by the way, that's another thing. It, you know, if if Psycho had been made in color, there's no way, no way he would have gotten this past the censors, right? You just couldn't show blood in this way. Um, so so the choice of black and white was very deliberate, certainly here as well. Um, so for blood, uh, studios at the time were using Hershey's, uh, but Hershey's came in cans and, and it was sort of this sort of big glob coming out. Right. And so the question is, how did Hitchcock create this little sort of, these little spurts of black rain, you know, this very realistic, I mean, it's so realistic sense of blood dripping from her body. Right. It's really gruesome. Well, he used Shasta, um, the Shasta chocolate syrup, which uh, had this uh, came out in this little tube with a little pointed end, so you would have this little stream coming out. And um, and uh, even though actually Marley remembers that there were cans of uh, of Hershey's there, they never actually used that. They used the Shasta to create this this particular effect. Getting super geeky on you, of course. But you know it's it's really gruesome. I mean it's everything about the scene is so real. Okay, so now we're getting to something super cool. She's turning around and this is the, such a vulnerable moment. Look at that. There's a sense, right, that she's being absolutely stabbed in the back. Of course, this is all a trick. It's all an illusion, right? The hand just goes right past her. Cut back to her feet. This wounded animal, you know, and it's getting darker. And here is something very interesting. So we start this very abstract shot of the hand, right? And of course, this is happening, you know, super fast. Obviously, as you've as you've seen, as you've just experienced. But now, Oh, well, I guess I just missed it. Sorry. Okay. Hold on. Ah! Come on. There we go. So, see, it. this is basically an invisible jump cut. And the effect of that, it's like, so you're seeing the hand and suddenly it's it cuts to her, right? And it seems like I mean, you know, you're like, why is this happening? But when you watch this again, and in fact, let's do that, it'll give you the sense that, ugh. No, it gives you the sense that she's being thrown against the wall, right? And this is, this is Tomasini's genius as an editor. And, you know, by the way, the side, you know, breast that you see again, like this is Hitchcock just, you know, pushing it as far as he can possibly go. I mean, this is him just having fun with with the censorship board, you know? But look, 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 boom, right? You saw that? And that's an invisible jump cut. 
You know, and this is one of those kind of discoveries. This is so cool too. The exit of the mother. We don't, you know, she's not staying around to watch. You know, is she dead? Is she is she going to die or not? Did I did I do my job? And but but you know, we're we're almost fast forwarding time. It's almost like the wet haircut. Um, you know, we're we're cutting to her. Uh, you know, we're missing probably two seconds here of screen time, and this is of course to add to this mystery. But it's such a creepy exit. You know, again, through that point of view of, you know, and this extraordinary wallpaper as well. And this is where the movie slows down. I mean, you know, Walter Murch was talking to me about the rhythm of of the cuts and how, you know, prior to the stabbing, it's a very leisurely, like, you know, four seconds or so per cut and then you get into the murder itself and it's about 18 frames per cut and then and then again it starts really slowing down and this is the tragic sort of moment i mean look at this hand you know like grasping it's almost like you know nails on a chalkboard which is of course what the music just did grasping like a starfish on the wall and we're back to that composition right uh, right before Norman made his entrance you know except that now she is against nothing there's the, but that cold cold white tile you know wall and and what a difference a few seconds make you know same shot completely different emotion she has been stabbed to death and um, very impressive by the way how she is not blinking here at all you know going through this and look at that the hair going down not a sign of blood here but it's just so gruesome and those lines again you you know, this water being so, you know, aggressive still, you know, like still like she's being stabbed by it. She's going down and down and down. In her last moment now, we're going to see the shot very soon. That will prove that it's not Janet Lee. So, you know, it's beautiful also, you know, the, the symmetry of it. You know, we're, uh, you know, we're going back to that same shot. Um, it was this kind of beautiful, you know, it was the eye of the shower, but it was very, you know, calming. She was, she was stepping into it. And I was the same shot with a very, very different uh, connotation. But it's still watching her. As you know, Brett Easton Ellis said, "This is where the movie really turns into, into art, and this is where you really start realizing that this scene, you know, mattered, um, you know, a great deal was really everything to to Hitchcock. You know, it's extraordinary shot. And like, are we going down in here? You know, and it's the another eye, by the way, you know, this circular, you know, and then you go back to vertigo and you think about the spirals in vertigo. You think about, you know, um, that particular motif that was set up 
you know, two years earlier that shows up here. So that's what I'm talking about. This is a this is an absolute master of cinema. Uh, who's not just making extraordinary films? Who's not only you know creating groundbreaking stuff and breaking rules and changing cinema, but he's also making his movies talk to each other in a in a way that you know we'll we'll, we'll probably never see again. You know that dissolve. Ay ay ay. Look at that. And you know, and every editor I've talked to is completely baffled by this shot, which is essentially what's called an optical, right? Um, the, I mean, you have to sort of imagine what it was like to move these massive 35 millimeter cameras at the time and try to get them to do some kind of spiral and then move out. I mean, you know, and you had to have a, a focus puller. And I mean, it's just a mess. Like they, they did actually 26 takes of this particular shot. Not to mention that you have to have Janet Lee, uh, you know, yeah, completely, you know, acting completely dead. Now, some people, well, okay, so some people uh, criticize Hitchcock uh, because if you're dead, your pupil is supposed to be dilated. <laughs> well, he could have, he could have done it. He could have done it with with a drop of belladonna which is also another beautiful thing, Belladonna, the beautiful lady, which she is, you know, you can go around, around, around. Uh, but uh, he never made, you know, he didn't make that mistake again in Frenzy, you know, uh, 73, I think. Uh, there's, there's a death, and, um, and he actually used Belladonna, so you can see that the pupil is, uh, is dilated. But regardless, the, all these editors that I've interviewed are, are completely baffled by, by how clean that optical is. So what it is is that it's a freeze frame that is then, then you know, rotated, and then you'll see the point where it syncs up with the live footage. But um, it's such a clean optical that even, even uh, technicians today don't understand how clean that was for the time, how it was possibly achieved. So there's a lot of mysteries uh, to that scene. You know, there's, um, like I said, I, I will never get to the bottom of it, and uh, I'm quite happy with that. So you'll see the point, we're going to close the point where it's going to sync up now to, to the footage. Oh, come on. And you know, if you if you watch the 1998 version of Gus Van Sant, you know, this is a, a classic example of like having the luxury to do certain things is not always a good thing. Um, he had a, a, a camera rig where you almost he does actually like a double 360 on her eye, and it's just it's just way too slick. It doesn't work, you know. Yes, like tears. It's gorgeous. It's it really is. You know, um, but what a you know if you think about Hitchcock's philosophy of like horrible things can happen to good people, and you know this is he's saying so much. You know, so we're gonna see a tiny little flicker in her eye right there. You saw that? Yeah. Yeah, it's very, very faint. Yeah, it's very, very faint. And right there, another, f- another slight flicker. You know, the reason. I'm sorry. 
the reason why we're actually cutting back to the shower head here uh, is that this is this is not intentional, by the way. Uh, Hitchcock really wanted it to be one smooth shot, and they had that take. Uh, which you know he thought was perfect. Tomasini thought was perfect. Um, everybody thought was perfect. And then Alma Hitchcock, his wife, walked in and said, "She's she just blinked, and she saw a tiny, tiny little blank that he had not noticed." And so that's the reason why we're cutting back to the showerhead here. Uh, but but it's also you know uh, it, it works because you know then when you cut back to her. It's like it feels like time has passed and nobody has bothered to turn off the water, you know. And now the camera moves out. And, you know, and the thing that's so remarkable is that he had to time that because the, the shot of the house and Norman walking out was also actually a rear projection. Um, so they were playing that and they had to time it to hit it at the right time. I mean, this shot is completely insane. It's completely crazy. And what I love the little irony of the, the, you know, the newspaper where it says okay on it. Well, of course, nothing is okay. Nothing is okay. Um, but it's also storytelling wise, this is a great thing. You know, it's, it's, it's Hitchcock sort of, punctuating his greatest trick by telling us now what right you thought this you know you thought you were watching a movie about this woman and the money she stole and you know uh, and that was the major dramatic question and all of that but no no and and now really you don't know what the story is about anymore you know that's the extraordinary thing about it And see, so it goes out. Mother, oh God! So see, you can you can see that this is a, a projection. I mean, the quality of, you know, the grain of the picture is is quite different. Mother, blood, blood. Very grainy. If you look at the you know, the curtain on the left versus the the clouds, completely different quality there. And of course, he knocks the picture of the bird. <laughs> so, what time is it, by the way? All right. Should we um, should we call it a night? All right. Well, do me a favor. Watch the rest of um, Psycho at some point. Um, well, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.